0: Welcome to Skywave Audio Theatre. I'm Norman Gilliland. The opening line was memorable only because it was the opening line for what turned out to be the debut of a 26-year run on radio and 15 years on television. What he said back in 1932 was, Ladies and gentlemen, this is Jack Benny talking. There will be a slight pause while you say, Who cares? Well, as it turned out, a lot of people cared for a long time. Partly because of Jack's generous personality, which came through his persona as a skinflint. And partly thanks to a cast that stayed with him through the years. wife, Mary Livingston, Don Wilson, Rochester, Phil Harris, and a wealth of guest stars. This week, the guest stars include the Ink Spots and Jack Benny favorite Bing Crosby. And along the way, you're going to hear the most pregnant pause in radio during The Jack Benny Show from April 4th, 1948.
1: The Jack Benny Program, presented by
2: Lucky Strike. The Lucky Strike Program,
3: starring Jack Benny with Perry Livingston, Phil Harris, Rochester, Dennis Day, and yours truly, Don Wilson. Ladies and gentlemen, as most of you know, last week Jack Benny visited the Ronald Coleman's, and he persuaded Ronnie to lend him his Academy Award Oscar. As Jack left the Coleman house, the following incident happened.
1: See, it was awfully nice of Ronnie to let me take his Oscar home so I could show it to Rochester. Hmm, sure as dark tonight. No moon. Oh well. Da Hey, Bud. Huh? You got a match? Yes. Yes, I have one right here. Don't make a move. This is a sticker. Mister, put down that gun. Shut up. I said this is a sticker. Now, come on. Your money or your life. (laughs)
2: Look, bud. I said
1: your money or your life. I'm thinking it over. Now, look, mister. Come on, give me your wallet and I'll let you have it. All right, mister. Don't shoot. Don't shoot. Here's my wallet. Good. <laughs> and I'll take that package you're carrying, too. This, pa- this package, but it isn't mine, it belongs to Ron Coleman. He wanted it. Hide it down and give it to me, or I'll drill you. All right, all right. Don't drill me. Here it is. Now, I'll lay down on the sidewalk and count to a hundred. Yes, yes, sir. One, two, three, four, five, six. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, that's what happened
3: Sunday night. As we look in on Jack now, it's the following morning.
1: Mary, I've thought of a million different things. I don't know what to do.
4: Oh, Jack, stop pacing the floor and sit down. You're making a nervous wreck of yourself.
1: He was like that all night, Miss Livingston. Never slept a wink. What am I going to do? How can I ever explain this to Ronnie?
4: Jack, you've got to control yourself or you'll have a breakdown. Now, why don't you have some breakfast? No,
1: Mary, I couldn't eat a thing. I don't care if I never eat again.
4: Mm.
5: He
1: hasn't been this upset since Cedar Barrett got married. (laughs) I'm at my wit's end I can't tell Ronnie his Oscar was stolen and never speak to me again I can't tell the police about the holdup because then it'll get in the papers I don't know what in the world can I do
4: well, why don't you kill yourself
1: say that's not a... oh stop <laughs> I'm not in the mood for jokes there must be some way I can get that Oscar back
4: well why don't you put an ad in the Beverly Hills paper and offer a reward
1: no Mary a reward would just be a waste of time who'd return it for what I'd offer
5: <laughs>
6: Mr. Bailey, if it will get you out of this mess Why don't you make the reward substantial Give her a thousand dollars Well, we're back to killing
1: yourself Yeah, there must be some other way out It Seems impossible that I should be held up Right in front of my own house
4: You know, you still haven't told me what happened I don't know any of the details yet
1: You... You don't? Well, Mary, this is exactly what happened. As I was leaving Ronnie's house, he loaned me his Oscar so I could show it to Rochester. I was walking home carrying the Oscar under my arm when a sinister-looking man stepped out of my head. Hey, Bud. Bud. Huh? You got a match? Yes, I have one right here. Don't make a move. This is a stick-up. A stick-up? Put down that gun or I'll thrash you to within an inch of your life. (laughs) Put it down, I say. No, no. No, no, just a second, mister. Don't you come any closer. So you think you can scare me with a gun? Well, I'll break your arm. Look,
6: mister, I didn't want to do this, but I had to. I had to get money for my wife and
1: children. Well, you didn't have to pull a gun on me if you wanted money. All you had to do was ask. I'm going to take that gun away from you And you'll see that I'm one of you, don't you come any closer All right, you for it. Take that Oh, yeah? Well, you take that And that
4: Uh, Jack What were you doing to the crook when you said Take that and that? He was
6: handing his wallet in the
1: Oscar (laughs) I was not Mary, while I was beating him up I dropped the Oscar He picked it up and ran off down the street Honestly, I was never so... Oh, who can that be? I don't want to see anyone today. Oh,
4: calm down, Jack. I'll go to the door. Gee, I feel so sorry for poor Jack. He's trying so hard to be brave. But I know he's been crying. His mascara's running. <laughs> well, I'm hoping to get out of this mess. Oh, hello, Don.
3: Hello, Mary. Where's Jack? I've got something very important to tell him.
4: Oh, well, Don, this isn't a good time to talk to him. He's very upset. Suppose you tell me what it is.
3: Well, it's about the quartet. They won't be able to appear on the program Sunday. Why not? Well, now, Mary, you may not believe this, but all the members of the quartet became fathers this morning.
4: Don? Don, you mean that each one of the four singers had a baby?
3: All except the baritone, he had twins. No. Yes, but, Betwina, they had five of the cutest babies you ever saw. And, Mary, you'll never guess what they've named them. What? L.S., M.F., and Barbara.
4: Barbara? It was a girl. Well, that's logical. Look Don. I'll go in and tell Jack all about it.
3: Okay, Mary. Thanks a lot. Goodbye. Bye.
4: Imagine all the singers in the quartet having babies the same day. That's what you call close harmony. <laughs> oh, brother, bag my eyes and call me Fred Allen.
1: <laughs> what took you so long, Mary? Who was it?
4: Oh, it was Don. He said the quartet won't be on the broadcast Sunday.
1: Oh, fine. Everything happens to me.
4: Well, they couldn't help it, Jack. Their wives all had babies the same day. And you'll never guess what the baritone's wife had.
1: Unless it's an Oscar, I'm not interested.
4: (laughs) She had twins. But Jack, what are you going to do about a quartet for the broadcast?
1: I don't know. It's a fine time for them to have children. Why couldn't they have transcribed them for release at a more convenient
2: time?
5: (laughs) Anyway, I got
1: enough to worry about without the quartet.
6: Say, boss, I've got a great idea. What? Some friends of mine are making a personal appearance here in town and... Maybe they'd come over and help you
1: out. Who are they, Rochester? The Ink Spots.
4: The Ink Spots? Oh, they would be wonderful. Do you think they do it, Rochester?
1: Sure, I'll call them and have them here in a few minutes. But good, use the phone in the hall, will Yes,
6: it? sir. I better call them right away so they can... <coughs> hmm, better answer the door first.
2: Hello, Chester. Is the master of the metropolis at home?
6: Yeah. yeah. Come on in, Mr. Harris. You'll find him in the library.
1: But he's feeling my low. Well, that's a good thing I came over. I'll cheer him up. I'll go in there and throw some of that Harris sunshine on him and bring back the bloom to those withered old cheeks.
2: <laughs> See you later, Ross. Oh, hiya,
1: Libby. You dream doll.
4: Hello, Phil. Hi, you,
1: Jackson. Hello, hello. Hey, Jackson. Did you hear the one about the two sparrows who were arguing on the pump and
2: one of them kept flying off the handle? Ha
5: ha 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 ha. Oh, ha, ha. <laughs> mm. <laughs>
2: Mm,
1: Looks like the smog is moving in on that hair of sunshine. (laughs) Look, Phil, I'm in no mood for jokes.
4: Well, that's right, Phil. But Jack's feeling pretty bad. On the way home last night, he was held up.
1: Well, that's not to be ashamed of. I've been held up many times on my way home. Phil, I was robbed. (laughs) Now, what did you come over here for? Yeah, look, Jackson... I'm figuring on buying a small ranch, and I got most of the dough, but I need a little more to swing the deal, and I was kind of wondering if you'd lend me uh, $10,000. Mary, tell them I'm not at home, will you?
5: <laughs> oh,
1: wait a minute, Jackson. I don't like asking you, but I went to the bank, and they turned me down. Now, if you turn me down, too, well, well, I'll, well I'll just have to go to Alice.
5: <laughs> well, Phil,
1: I, I'd like to help now, you Now, wait up. a minute, Jackson I ain't asking you to give me nothing We'll make it a regular business deal Like when you loaned me money before I'll sign papers for the loan Pay you interest and everything Well, are you... Are you willing to put up security? Yeah, but not like last time We missed the kids <laughs> I'll have my business manager draw up the papers.
6: Excuse me for interrupting, boss, but Mr. Ronald Coleman called.
1: Oh, no.
6: Oh, yes. He said he's having guests for dinner and wants you to return his Oscar immediately.
4: Phil, you better go get the money from Alice.
1: (laughs) Now Ronnie wants his Oscar back. This is the last straw. Mary, you know what I'm going to do?
4: Oh, not now, Jack. A gun is so noisy and I've got a splitting headache. I don't
1: mean that. I'm going to check a list of all the people who ever won Oscars. And maybe borrow one of them so I can give it to Ronnie till I get his back.
4: Hey, that sounds like a pretty good idea. Let's see now. Last year, the Oscars won by Frederick March and Livy de Havilland.
1: Well, that won't help. Freddie's out of town and Olivia hasn't talked to me since I put too much starch in her doilies.
5: Who else is there?
1: Well, Ray Milan won an Oscar.
4: Ah, what a picture. <laughs> yeah. And so did Joan Crawford and Loretta Young and Bing Crosby and, uh... Hey, that's
1: it, Mary. He's the one, Bing Crosby. I did him a big favor. I was on a show a couple of weeks ago, and it isn't easy to be on his show. The needle scratches. <laughs> over to see Bing right away and ask him to lend me his Oscar.
4: Okay, Jack, I'll drive you there. I have my car right outside.
1: Good, good. Now, who can that be? I'll get it, boss.
6: Well, hello, gentlemen. Come right in. Hey, boss, boss.
2: Yeah? It's the Ink spots. The Ink Spots. Well, hello, fellas. Hello, hello, Mr. Benny.
5: Very glad to meet you. <laughs> uh, thank you.
2: Now, gentlemen,
6: as I told you over the phone, Mr. Benny's quartet can't be on the program next week, and he'd like to have you do a number for him on Sunday show.
1: We'd be very happy to.
6: Yes, very happy. Good, <laughs> good.
1: Well, fellas, I was just leaving, so could I hear the number right now? Do you happen to know if I didn't care... Do you know Love in Blue? Oh, oh, oh! Yeah, I see what you mean. Uh, well, go ahead, boys. Uh, let's have it.
2: If I didn't care, would it be the same? Would my And end with just your name. And would I be sure that this is long beyond compare? Would all this be true if I didn't care for you? I didn't care what I smoked,
5: baby.
2: I'd smoke any kind of a cigarette. But I do care, honey,
5: child.
2: That's why I smoke Lucky Strikes. I smoke Lucky Strikes because, according to that Crosley poll, they're first choice, baby. You want to know something else, honey, child? They're so round, so firm, so full so free and easy on the draw. That's right, baby. L.S.M.L.T. <laughs> what a secret! Then, then this must be true. <laughs> Lucky's are <laughs> <or> the <laughs> small.
1: Absolutely wonderful! I can't wait until you do it on the show.
6: Thank, Thank
1: you, Mister Benny. Benny. Yes, yeah, thanks very much. Uh, Rochester, uh, Rochester, come here a minute. Yes. Sir. Uh, how uh, how much are they going to charge me to be on my show? Why, boss? They said as
6: a favor to me, they'd go on your show for nothing.
1: For nothing? Why,
6: well, I wouldn't think of it.
1: I mean, that's ridiculous. Go in the kitchen and fix them some sandwiches. <laughs>
6: you, boss.
1: When it
5: comes to guest stars, bread is no object. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: Come on, Mary. Drive me over to Crosby's. You know? Mary, there's Bing Crosby's house over there on the left. Just pull into the driveway here. I
4: can't, Jack. There's a sign. It says, keep driveway clear. Truck's loading. Hmm.
1: Must be sending his money to the bank. Well, toot the horn. We'll see if he's home. Oh, there's Bing in the upstairs window. Hey, who's that honking in C sharp? Well, this is a pleasant surprise. Come up to the front door. I'll let you in.
4: Come on, Jack. Now, remember, you just can't come right out and ask him to lend you his Oscar. Be a little subtle about
1: it. I know, I know. Watch these steps, Mary. Right. Hello, Mary. Come right in. Oh, Jack's with you.
5: <laughs> and
1: I ran all the way.
5: <laughs>
1: what? Come in. Come on, come on in. <laughs> Hope you folks will forgive the way I'm dressed. I wasn't expecting anybody or i just sort of dressed up.
5: <laughs> that shirt
1: you've got on looks like Finian's rainbow. <laughs> Especially with that pot on the end of it. Well, well, well. It's rumored you're pretty funny on the air, too. <clears throat> <laughs> However, let's not discuss one's alleged talent in the entrance hall. First time you've been to this house, isn't it? you have any trouble finding it? No, no, no. I just followed my nose. Hope tried that once, wound up on Mount Wilson.
5: <laughs> shoot him
1: down. <laughs> well, well, it's rumored you're pretty funny on the air, too. Yeah, you're pretty fast as the old lad lived there, kid. All you have to do is hear it once, isn't it? <laughs> Yeah, you know, Bing, we were just driving by and thought we'd drop in for a social visit. Yeah, uh, get to the point, but be subtle. Leave it to me. Uh, Bing, uh, how about showing us the house? You know, take us into the den. Or do you keep your Oscar in another room? There? Oscar? Oh, I got that in the trophy room. Oh, good, good. However, if you insist on seeing the den, I'd love to show it to you. No, 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 Bing. Right we been have... right through this door. Oh.
4: Gee, what a beautiful den.
1: Well, we've been here long enough. Now,
4: let's go
2: into the, uh...
1: Let's go to the trophy room.
4: Oh, Jack, look at that picture on the mantelpiece. Bing, are those your children?
1: Yeah, those are the four boys. The two in the end are twins. Twins? Mm -hmm. Well, that's a coincidence. (laughs) You know, this morning, my baritone's wife had an Oscar.
4: Jack! I mean... Bing,
5: it
4: must be wonderful having four children. Oh, where's Dixie? Oh, she had
1: to go to the hospital. What? To visit her cousin. Bing, uh, hmm? are you sure it isn't the stork? Positive. I got him in my trophy room.
5: <laughs> well, let's go
1: see him. You know, I've never seen a stuffed Oscar. I mean, stork. Okay, just follow me here. Oh, would you excuse me a minute? Well,
5: hmm. hello.
1: Well, hello. Fancy hearing from you. Sure, I want you on my show. I've been expecting you for a long time. How long will it take you to get here? Two days. Well, good. I'll meet you at the train. Bye. Who is that? Rudolph (laughs) Schmohopper. It's going to take him a couple days to get here. Now, where does he live? The do wah diddy will come from there. Now, Bing, uh, how about going to the trophy room? Oh, yes, the trophy room. Right down this hall. Here, Mary, I'll lift you over.
4: No, I'll just uh, walk around him. Hmm.
1: Fine place for a horse to sleep. I can't understand. What... Bing, I was stepping over him and he got up. don't worry, Jackson. He can't stand up
5: long. (laughs)
2: What?
1: Yeah, I guess you're right. Poor old thing. Yeah, the veterinarian said he was going to die yesterday, but none of my horses finish on time. (laughs) Well, here we are, kids. Here's the trophy room.
4: Jack, look at all the heads mounted on the wall. Gosh, Bing, you sure must have done a lot of hunting.
1: Yeah, What's that big head over there?
4: Yours. You're looking in the mirror.
1: No, no, I mean the one with the brown eyes. That big head over there. That's a moose.
4: What's a small one? A mouse. No. Yes,
1: sir. Shot the mouse in Wyoming and caught the moose under the icebox.
4: You to
1: try hunting, Jack. when to get
5: anything?
1: Besides <laughs> the whole joint,
5: doesn't
4: it? <laughs> big big
1: game hunting's very exciting, Jackson. You ought to try it, especially the big game.
4: Bing, huh? the only big game that Jack's interested in is a buffalo, and it has to be on a nickel. Mary, he tracks him with one finger in a telephone slot.
0: Well, it ain't
1: easy, sister. Well, Bing, this is really a beautiful room. I never saw some. Wait a minute. Say, Bing, why have you got that picture of Frank Sinatra on the wall? kids throw darts at it. <laughs> oh, I thought he had chicken pots there. <laughs> now, Bing, let's see the trophies, will they? There you? they are, right over there in the cabinet. Oh, boy, look at all those cups.
4: Uh, where would you get them for, Bing?
1: Well, I grabbed this uh, cup here for winning a golf tournament at Lakeside. I got this one for winning the Santa Anita Handicap. I need a handicap. What horse? No horse. Ran myself. Paid six cents. Total finish. Just got up the last jump. Oh. What? There. What? What's that
4: little tiny cup on the end?
1: That's not a cup. That's a thimble. With four kids. Got to do a lot of sewing. <laughs>
4: yeah. yeah. You see this one here,
1: Jack? I got this when I got married.
4: When you got married? Yeah. It's
1: a Dixie cup. <laughs> Why do I take jokes from Phil Harrison? Phil's brother. Well, look, Bing, the trophy that I'm most interested in is in the Oscar you won for Going My Way.
4: Yes, we'd love to see that one, Bing.
1: Oh, the Oscar. Why didn't you say so? I'll get it for you.
2: Lenny, you in there?
4: Yeah, Pop, what do you want?
1: You'll have to give me my Oscar.
4: I can't, no, I'm taking a bath.
1: Oh, for heaven's sake, why don't you use something else for a stopper? <laughs> Bing, you let your son use the Oscar for a stopper in the bathtub? Yeah, That's it's terrible. all his web, too, when I want to crack nuts with it. It's murder. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm really anxious to see the Oscar, Bing, but we can wait till your boy gets through with his bath. <sighs> he'll be through in a minute.
4: Say, Bing, hmm? while we're waiting, how about sing a song for us?
1: Oh, Mary, Bing doesn't want to sing. I do, too.
5: <laughs> <laughs> what would you like to hear, Mary?
1: Well, I'll try out a new tune on you called Haunted Heart. It's a clever number. I hope you like it.
4: was beautiful. Thanks, Mary. It's pretty good for a chorus. Dennis
1: Day gets a chorus and a half. I get a chorus.
4: <laughs> but if
1: you want, I'll sing a couple of more. Hey, Pop, why don't you
5: give up? <laughs> the other three put you up to that, huh? <laughs>
1: Say,
4: Bing, but, look, your son brought out the Oscar and put it on the table.
1: Yeah. Gee, doesn't that Oscar look wonderful? Now, Bing, I might as well get right to the point. I'm in an awful spot. I've just got to borrow your Oscar for a little while. Well, look, Bob, if you need an Oscar, instead of going around trying to borrow one, go make a picture.
5: Win one. <laughs>
1: hey, I never thought of that. <laughs> but, Bing, it's too late for that. I need it now. You can't make a picture in one day. They took longer on the horn blows at midnight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was sick a couple of days. It took almost a week to make it, <laughs> But, Bing, look, I just want it for a few days. I'll give it right back to you. Well, what's the deal, Jack? Why do you need an Oscar all of a sudden? Well,
4: Jack, why don't you tell him the truth? Tell him what happened.
1: All right, I will. You see, Bing, I was over at Ronald Coleman's house, and he let me borrow his Oscar to take to my house to show Rochester. I was walking home carrying the Oscar, when suddenly a sinister-looking man stepped out of the head. Hey, Bud. Bud. Huh? You got a match? Yeah, I got one right here. Don't make a move. This is a stick-up. What? You heard him. This is a stick-up. Oh, two of you, huh? (laughs) Well, you think you're scaring me with those guns? I'll make you eat them and spit out the bullets. Hey, Pete, this guy's pretty tough. We better call the rest of the gang. Yeah. All right, Pete, come on. We need help. (laughs) Well, it looks like I'll have to take off my coat. Now, oh, look, <laughs> Mr. we don't want no trouble with you. We've got guns. <laughs> and hand grenades. So watch, you can't scare me. I'll take on your whole outfit. And, Bing, when the whole thing was over, I knocked out all their men but one.
3: This is NBC, the National Broadcasting Company.
0: A packed half hour of the Jack Benny Show with guests Bing Crosby and the Ink Spots, and of course the gang of regulars with the famous Your Money or Your Life routine. And by the sound of it, some of the ad libs in there too. Bing Crosby won, by the way, the Best Actor Oscar for his lead in the 1944 film Going My Way. And now, meet a young woman who goes whatever way suits her at the moment. It's Academy Award Theater with Kitty Foyle. Next, this is Skywave Audio Theater. It was a bestseller as a 1939 novel by Christopher Morley. It was a hit as a 1940 movie starring Ginger Rogers. It was a radio serial from 1942 to 44, and there was even a TV soap opera version for several months in 1958. The idea behind Kitty Foyle was to show the life of the upper class with all of its foibles and faults, from the viewpoint of an outsider, and is she ever. Even a half hour version gives you a good idea of the concept. From April 4th, 1946, this is Academy Award with Ginger Rogers in Kitty Foyle. (laughs)
7: Presents the finest in motion picture entertainment Academy Award. The House of Squibb, manufacturing chemist to the medical profession since 1858, bring you Academy Award. The pictures, the players, the techniques and skills which have won or been nominated for the coveted awards granted each year by the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences to each in his field for outstanding achievement. Each week, Squib on the Air brings you only the finest performances. Squib in your home brings you only the finest medicinal products. Pure, effective, reliable. Squib, a name you can trust. Tonight's picture is Kitty Foyle. Tonight's star is the distinguished RKO player, Miss Ginger Rogers. And now, Miss Ginger
8: Rogers. Thank you. And good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My hope is that some of our excitement and pleasure in reenacting these Academy Award roles will be communicated itself to you through our performances. Also, it would be ungrateful of me if we were to do Kitty Foyle tonight without thanking the men who brought Kitty to the screen. So thank you, David Hempstead and Sam Wood. Kitty Foyle was written for radio by Frank Wilson with an original musical score composed and conducted by Lee Stevens. And our producer-director is Dee Engelbach.
7: Academy Award, starring Ginger Rogers in her 1940 Academy Award-winning role of Kitty Foyle. Kitty! Kitty! Kitty, girl! Yes, Pop? Shut that dang thing up.
8: I can't, Pop. I can't. I'm going too fast. I'm on a sleigh ride. A sleigh ride. Well, it seems my whole life was spent on a sleigh ride. First it was Wynn Strafford, my mainline Prince Charming. But now it seems to be Mark Eisen, a good, dependable, trustworthy Mike. Mark, it was spring again in New York. And as Mark drove me home that evening, I had a hunch that this might be the spring of all my years.
9: Here we are, Kitty. Pocahontas Hotel, home of lonely women. Uh, Kitty, wait.
8: Yes, Mark?
9: Kitty, will you... Will you take this ring?
8: Oh, Mark.
9: Well, you see, I've got lots of money tied up in this golden hoop, and there's no other way I can get any use out of it.
5: (laughs)
8: Well, can't you find my finger, Mark?
9: You... You did say yes, didn't you? I mean, it's it's, it's all clear. There's no confusion. Mm. You understand what I asked you.
8: You asked me to marry you, didn't you?
9: Oh, that's it. Exactly.
8: I got it. That's why I said yes.
9: Kitty, what I'm getting around to... uh, That... that fellow in Philadelphia, that's all over, huh? All over. Oh, then we're getting married tomorrow. Meet me at the hospital tonight, huh? Midnight. Mm -hmm. We'll go straight to Greenwich. Yes, Mark. I guess this will be farewell to the Pocahontas... Kiss all those dear old bachelor girls goodbye for me. <laughs>
8: I'll kiss them all, and then I'll pack like mad.
9: Okay. And meet me at St. Timothy's Hospital at 12. Smack on the dot.
8: 12, smack on the dot, St. Timothy's.
9: Oh, good evening, Miss Foyle.
8: Good evening. My key, please. Thank you. Oh, will you make up my bill tonight? Oh, you're leaving? I'll say I am, Joe. I'm getting married. Oh, please send for my bags around 11.30.
9: Right. <laughs>
10: Hello, Kitty.
8: When? What are you doing in my room?
10: You sent for me.
8: I sent for you? You
10: sent back the ring. Uh, Kitty, remember what I told you? If you ever needed me or wanted me or would have me, send the ring back to me.
8: Oh, I forgot. I... That wasn't what I meant. I sent it back because that was all. That was the end.
10: Don't say that, Kitty. Oh, Kitty, there's no life for me without you. I want you. I need you. I love you this minute as I've never loved you before.
8: But, when it's too late. Five years, too late.
10: No, Kitty, it'll never be too late. What we had can't die. I'm asking that we leave together for South America and be together always.
8: Oh, when don't ask me anything. Don't let me think. Oh, darling,
10: at last it all comes true. And
8: will we live happily ever after?
10: Forever and ever. When will we go? We sail at midnight. I'll be at the pier with everything arranged. Now, will you meet me there?
5: Mm-hmm.
10: Pier 48, mm-hmm. midnight. Mm-hmm. Oh, Kitty, I love you. Don't be late. Mm-hmm. Bye-bye.
8: When I... When? Wait, when? Well, Kitty Foyle, here we go again. Maybe this time it's for Keeps. You're making a mistake, you know. You're still on that sleigh ride. Oh, marriage isn't everything. What is it anyway? It's just a little piece of paper. A lot of fine things come out of that little piece of paper, Kitty. A home, children. That's where Mark comes in again. And you'd be a lot happier with Mark and that little piece of paper than you ever could be with Wynne. You know what I think? I think you're wrong. Mm-hmm. <laughs> hmm I remember you using those words once before. Remember way back when you lived on Griskin Street in Philadelphia? And Pop, what a grand guy he was.
11: Ah, Kitty. I guess an old heathen like me never had any business trying to raise a daughter anyhow. I wanted to keep you from stubbing your toe. I thought you had all this junk rooted out of your mind. What junk? Cinderella and her blasted prince. Kitty, don't you see? It's... Oh, it's no
8: good. Don't argue, Pop. I
11: love him. Judas Priest. You said it. You mean you want to marry Winstrap?
8: Mm-hmm.
11: Has he ever asked you to meet his family?
8: Pop, he doesn't even know I love him yet. Big secret. But I've never worried much about his family because I've got a funny idea. I'm just as good as they are.
11: Kitty... Hey, Judas Priest. You're going to break your heart.
8: It was so easy to fall in love with him. You were doing it from the start. Falling in love with your boss. But there's no getting around it. Those were probably the happiest days in your life. Crazy, but nice. Like the first time he took you to New York. I've never been in a speakeasy before.
10: Best people in New York come here. <laughs>
7: ah,
12: here we are, Mr. Strafford. My last bottle of strake.
10: Oh, thanks, Giono. Uh,
8: what's a strake?
10: It's Italian brandy. Oh, I know. They say if two people drink it together, they'll never drink it apart.
8: When? Why did you bring me
5: here?
10: Well, four or five years ago, I got into this place of Giono's. I liked it. Oh. I liked it because all of a sudden I felt free here. Philadelphia, the main line, all of those things that order my life—they disappear the minute I enter that door. Well, I wanted to make a good impression on you, so I brought you where I thought I most likely could do it.
8: Well, when I didn't mean to criticize you, Kitty? I was just—Kitty,
10: yeah. I've got an idea. Yeah. Will you go to the assembly with me this year?
8: Me? Are you kidding? No,
10: cross my heart.
8: Oh, that's funny. You know, when I was a little girl, I, I used to read in the papers about the assembly in Philadelphia, and mm-hmm. cut out the pictures of the society ladies and their beautiful dresses and use them for paper dolls.
10: Yeah, that's <laughs> probably the best use they've ever been put to.
8: I know they've got rules and a committee that goes over the list of those invited. And they come across somebody like Foyle, boom, and the next thing you know, you're being scraped up off, off the sidewalk.
10: <laughs> <laughs> you leave that to me. My mother's on that committee.
8: Oh, uh-huh. oh when... Have you ever had a dream come to life right in front of your very eyes?
10: No, but I'm still hoping. Is it a date, Kitty?
8: I'm crazy, I know, but it's a date.
10: Come on. Let's get our wraps and get out of this smoky den.
8: Where are we going? I've got to go home pretty soon. We're
10: going to Lake Pocono just for an hour. See the sunset.
8: But it's already set.
10: Oh, we see the moon rise. I'll get you home in time for supper. Come on, Kitty. It's not much of a drive, and you belong in moonlight.
8: Lake Pocono and winds Lodge in the mountains, snug and comfortable, exciting, and a million miles from everything but moonlight. Remembering that night is like putting your tongue in a sore tooth, that same sharp little twinge. Funny how love makes a woman quiet and a man talkative.
10: But Lancelot mused a little space. He said, she has a lovely face. God, in his mercy, lend her grace, the Lady of Shalott. Isn't that beautiful, darling? Mm.
5: Tell
8: me about beauty, teacher.
10: Gladly. As you know, it's a man's duty to instruct woman in all subjects. Now you pick the subject.
8: No. I've only got a few minutes, but um, tell me where we are.
10: We are in the Pocono Mountains, mm. situated in the state of Pennsylvania.
8: No, no but um, where are we really? In heaven?
10: No. In love.
8: Tell me about love.
10: Well, first, there was a man. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And there was a woman.
8: Uh-huh. Oh, what did the man and the woman do?
10: Well, at first, they just hung around. Oh. Then one night, a strange thing happened. What? They were sitting in front of a fire like this, and the firelight played upon the woman's face. The man, for the first time, saw how beautiful she was. Looking into her eyes, he suddenly beheld all the wonders of life. So, immediately, he made love to her.
8: Well, uh, didn't the woman object?
10: No. She loved him, too.
8: Why? Well. Because he was everything that she had ever dreamed of. Oh, my darling. I love you, Wynn. It couldn't go on like that. It just couldn't. Who did you ever think you were, Kitty Foyle? That you could live rent-free and forever in paradise. Didn't you see it coming? Didn't you know the magazine was bound to fail? Couldn't you tell that he would say the things he said because, well, being him, he couldn't have said anything else. Did you have to hurt inside as if he'd stabbed you with a knife? Yes, Kitty Foyle, you did.
10: Well, the magazine's done. It's folded. It's finished. Ten thousand my mother gave me spent. Now what will you do?
8: Me? Oh, oh, that's right. I'm out of a job. Yeah. <laughs> well, I might get one in New York.
10: I can't let you do that.
8: Why? Why
10: not? Because it, it's just silly. Besides, would be too far apart.
8: Well, it is isn't China. Kitty,
10: well, this is kind of delicate, but...
8: Yeah, well, go on.
10: Your father isn't very well, and you're all alone, and it's too much for you to handle.
5: Yeah.
10: I mean, I feel that I'm kind of responsible. It isn't your fault the magazine failed, and so... Well, until you get another job, I don't want you to have to worry about money.
8: What do you mean?
10: I'll just... just keep you on the payroll. It's only fair, you know, because...
8: Just a minute. You don't need to worry about me, Wynn. I'm 21, or almost. And I'd love you from here on out, or till I stop loving you. But nobody owes a thing to Kitty Foyle.
13: Except Kitty Foyle. Kitty. Wait.
14: Kitty!
7: Before continuing with part two of Ginger Rogers Academy Award winning performance of Kitty Foyle, let's look in on the RKO lot where they are shooting the final scenes of Ginger's new picture, Sam Wood's production of Heartbeat. All right, boys.
9: <laughs> Here we are, much like Alice in Wonderland, isn't it?
7: walking into a strange new world. Had you any idea it took so many skills and crafts to make a fine picture? Here's a young lady we might persuade to talk to us for a second. Oh, miss.
8: Hello. Uh,
7: Hello. May I ask what your job is on this lot?
15: Sure. I'm a makeup girl. Right now I'm working on Heartbeat. That's Miss Rogers' new picture, you know.
7: Yes, I know. That must keep you pretty busy, doesn't it?
15: I'll say it does. But it's worth it. Just wait till you see Ginger Rogers in this one.
7: Well, I'm certainly looking forward to that. But tell me, in your job of makeup, I imagine the smile is pretty important, isn't it?
15: Yes, sir. The smile is everything.
7: Well, same in my business. You see, squib dental cream encourages a sparkling smile, and it refreshes your mouth at the same time. Everyone enjoys the minty taste of squib dental cream. It's so cool and fresh.
15: Yes, I know.
7: And did you know that the polishing agent in squib dental cream? is one of the safest, softest, yet most effective known to dental science?
15: Well, I'm glad to know.
7: And did you know that pure squib Dental Cream has to pass more than 100 separate tests before it touches your brush? It's just one more evidence of the scientific care that goes into the making of this quality dentifrice. Use squib Dental Cream regularly. Taste, feel, and see the refreshing difference. <laughs> ¶¶ And now for part two of tonight's picture, Kitty Foyle, starring the Academy Award winner, Miss Ginger Rogers.
8: You thought you were off the sleigh ride, Kitty Foyle, when you took your shattered little pieces of pride and went to New York to ring the Liberty Bell. But you were wrong. Getting a job selling perfume, meeting a swell guy like Mark, Hiding your pain in the crowds, no dice, Kitty Foil. You were still on that sleigh, and you had a ticket in your heart for the entire trip. Molly, where are you? For heaven's sake, what's going on here? I don't know. I got home, and they started coming. Somebody's nuts. I know the delivery boy like a brother right now. You should see what's in the bathtub. Water lilies,
13: and look at these. A (laughs)
8: hothouse we got. A million dollars worth of flowers, and they're all for you.
13: For me? Well, who are they? Well, they are from? Win? It's Win. Come in, Win.
8: Win, Kitty. Oh, Win! How did you ever find me?
10: I just followed my heartbeats. Here, here presents. Shall I go outside while you dress, or when? can I just close my eyes?
8: What do you mean, dress?
10: We have a date tonight for the assembly. When? Only ours is going to be right here in New York.
8: Oh, when? You remember. Hey,
10: I, I hope you like this dress.
8: Oh, go, let Oh, when? Kitty.
10: Oh. Kitty, I forgot to tell you. What? How much I love you.
8: Oh. Oh, how much do you love me?
10: If I said as much as you love me, would that be enough?
8: Oh, darling. If that were true, there wouldn't be any love left for anybody else in the whole world.
10: Having fun? Mm,
8: I'm dancing in a dream.
10: Our very own private assembly ball. At the Ritz. <laughs> Here, I've got something for you.
8: Yeah, what? What is it?
10: A ring, darling.
8: Wow, Art. but it's beautiful.
10: It was my great grandmother's. Oh. It's a symbol of eternal life, the snake eating its tail. You see?
8: Oh, I see.
10: A symbol of eternal life for my great grandmother, to me, and you, and to those that come after us forever. It's our family.
8: When? Why? Uh... Are you giving it to me?
10: Kitty, will you marry me?
8: Oh, man. I can't. You love me now only because we're not in Philadelphia. I'll
10: fix that. Boys, will you play the sidewalks of New York, please?
8: What's the idea?
10: Oh, that's our song now. We're New Yorkers, both of us.
8: Oh, dear. Darling, no main line, no Philadelphia. Mm. Just you and me, me and you. Dear God, please don't ring the alarm clock for just a little while. Let it go on just as it is now. Just as it is now. Oh, he heard me. It's Sunday morning.
10: Those are wedding bells, darling. Wedding bells for us.
8: And so you were married, Mr. and Mrs. Wynwood Strafford VI. Remember, you read it over and over when Wynn wrote it on the register of that little hotel in Gretna Green. There's no use denying it. Those two days were just about perfect. And then you went back to Philadelphia to tell Wynne's family.
10: Hello, everybody.
9: Wyn, dear, come in.
10: You remember Kitty Mother?
9: Indeed I do. It's so nice to see you again, Miss Foyle. Oh, thank you.
10: You remember my grandmother, yes. Jessica, Uncle Edgar, Uncle Kenneth? Oh, glad to see you. you again, Miss Foyle. Well, the fact is, the name isn't Foyle anymore. It's Strafford. Kitty and I've been married. <clears throat> oh, why don't you say something? All oh, right, she's so beautiful, she's taking your breath away.
12: You'll have to forgive me, my dear. I just wasn't prepared for such news. You understand, don't you? Oh, of
8: course. After all, it it is a surprise. Shall we sit down? Will you have tea? No, no, thank you. When were you married, dear? Monday. I
12: see. We thought, naturally, that Wynne would wait a year. But you understand, of course, that above everything else, we want you and him to be happy. That's first and foremost in our thoughts. Isn't it?
7: Oh, yes, of course, my dear. Well,
8: I don't uh, want to seem rude, but would somebody mind telling me what you're driving at? It's only this, my dear, Mother.
10: You see, honey, I promised I wouldn't marry you for a year. Mother was going to take you under her wing and prepare you.
8: Prepare me for what?
10: You know, some school, some good finishing school.
8: School? Are you kidding
10: me? No, no, my dear. Let's keep calm.
8: Now, look. Let's get a few things straight around here. I didn't ask to marry the Straffords, as Strafford asked to marry me. I married a man, not an institution or a bank. Oh, I've got a fine picture of your family conferences here. All the Straffords trying to figure out how to take the curse off Kitty Foyle, buy the girl a phony education, and polish off the rough edges and make a mainline doll out of her. <laughs> oh, you ought to know better than that. It takes six generations to make a bunch of people like you, and by Judas Priest, I haven't got that much time. Fine words, Kitty Foyle. Well, back to New York and your old job. It's not living, though, when every time you hear a knock on the door, you hope it's somebody you know isn't going to be there. When every time you walk down a street, you think you see him coming through the crowd. And finally, you run into Mark again, and he takes you out for a drink. Poor Mark, he would pick Giono's.
5: What's
9: the matter, Kitty? Don't you like Giono's?
12: Good evening.
9: Oh, uh, give us something kind of special, huh?
12: Maybe Strager.
9: Yes, yes, two of them. Kitty, there's something I want to tell you.
8: Mark, you knew I was married. I...
9: Yes.
8: Well, I'm, I'm not anymore. I uh, I got my decree today.
12: Here you are. We haven't had any calls for stragg in a long time.
8: Mark, I can't stay here. Mark, it's no use. All the time we're together, I keep thinking of him. And you're too nice to be pushed around. And it's only fair for me to tell you. I see. Let's say goodbye here, Mark.
9: I'm a pretty good doctor, Kitty. But seeing you, I... I wish I'd specialized in heart trouble.
8: You were ghost-ridden and haunted, Kitty Foyle. You ran until you couldn't run anymore. And then one day, an item in a Philadelphia paper.
7: Uh, Mr. and Mrs. Devereux Gladwin announced the engagement of their daughter,
9: Miss Veronica Gladwin, to Mr. Winwood Strafford VI. Hmm.
8: You thought you could only die once, but you learned. You learned. And time kept on doing business at the same old stand, five years of it. Then they sent you down to Philadelphia to open a branch of the store. You were afraid to go, afraid of all the things it might bring back. But nothing happened until the afternoon of your last day, about half past four. I think I'd better have some perfume, too. Oh, yes, madam. Are you going to the opera or dancing? I'm going to the assembly tonight. Oh, I see. What flowers are you wearing? Oh, I hadn't thought yet. I'm glad you mentioned that, because I usually have to buy them myself. Oh, well, in that event, I suggest saint perfume with camellias hello. or... a call, Mrs. Stafford. Oh, thank you. Mrs. Strathaird. Oh, it couldn't be... Hello? Hello... Oh, hello, Wynn. Oh, you don't have to go to New York again, do you? But, Wynne, in the five years we've been married, we've never gone to the assembly together. Very well. I'm sorry, but I'll have to leave right away. May I send the perfume to the house with the other things? No. I'll make a selection some other time. The assembly. Tonight. Mrs. Wynne Strafford.
4: Is that all, Miss Boyle? The package is ready to go to Mrs. Strafford. Yes, that's... No.
8: No, wait. Here's something else. Wrap this up, this ring, for Mr. Strafford.
10: You sent back the ring. Kitty, remember what I told you? If you ever needed me or wanted me or would have me, send the ring back to me.
8: That wasn't what I meant. I sent it back because that was all. That was the end. Don't say that, Kitty. But it's true, Win. Look, you'll have to go.
10: I'm sailing at midnight. I'm asking that we leave together and be together always. Pier 48, midnight. Yes. Don't be late. Oh, darling, don't be late.
8: And will I live happily ever afterward?
10: Forever and ever. Forever and ever.
7: Cab, Miss Foyle? Oh, yes, please. <laughs> you are going to be gone long, Miss Foyle?
8: Yes, permanently.
7: We don't get many pretty girls here at the hotel. We might be sorry to lose you.
8: <laughs> oh, Sam. Yes? I think that a young man will call for me a little after midnight. Yes, Miss. will be quite excited, I think, very insistent. Yes? I want you to tell him that um, that I admire him very much. And that I always will. Just
7: a minute. I better write this down on my pad. You admire him very much... And, and
8: tell him that I'll never forget him.
7: You will never forget him and...
8: And tell him that I'll always love him in a very special way.
7: You'll always love him in a...
8: And then tell him that I'm being married tonight.
7: You're getting married tonight. Hey, what is this? Where to, Miss?
8: St. Timothy's Hospital, please. No, no. I've had enough of sleigh riding. Goodbye, Wynne. Goodbye, dear. But here's where I get off.
7: Today, medical science moves with incredible swiftness. Even before the miracles of penicillin were completely charted, work was going forward in a scientific laboratory on another similar substance called streptomycin. What is streptomycin? It is a powerful drug science has taken from the earth itself by painstaking and complicated extraction processes. What does streptomycin contribute to the conquest of disease? It is effective against certain deadly germs that even penicillin doesn't conquer. With streptomycin, as with penicillin, squib scientists are working in the forefront of progress, cooperating with other scientists all over the world in the effort to discover and prove all that streptomycin can do and to make it available as soon as possible to every doctor. For the Squib idea for nearly a century has been to strive ceaselessly in the cause of health. And through its endless quest for perfection, Squib has earned its reputation everywhere as a name you can trust. Next week, another great picture. The House of Squibb will present Academy Awards starring one of film's most distinguished actors, Mr. Paul Muni, in his Academy Award winning performance in The Life of Louis Pasteur. Next week, it is Academy Awards starring Mr. Paul Muni in The Life of Louis Pasteur. Ginger Rogers appeared in Kitty Foyle tonight through the courtesy of RKO Radio Pictures, producers of The Spiral Staircase. This is Hugh Brundage bidding you good night until next week at the same time when the House of Squibb invites you to join us for Academy Awards. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System.
0: From April 4th, 1946, Ginger Rogers as Kitty Foyle from Academy Award Theater, a story about a strong willed young woman who tells it like it is as she moves through the privileged class. How many marriage proposals were in there? And it was a tidied-up version of the original best-selling novel. Next, a tale about wing walkers and love and honor from the NBC short story. This is Skywave Audio Theater. William Faulkner wrote some of the great novels of the 20th century, The Sound and the Fury and as I lay dying. He also won the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1949. Well, along the way, he went through some hard times, and in the 1930s, Faulkner held his nose, figuratively speaking, and went to Hollywood in order to make a steady living, his most memorable project there being the 1944 Bogart-Bacall film To Have and Have Not, based loosely on the novel of the same name, by Ernest Hemingway. Well, Faulkner knew some things about love triangles, and he wrote a short story, Honor, about one. In the NBC short story adaptation, Paul Fries plays a former World War I pilot trying to settle into a job that he can enjoy, and Barney Phillips is a friend with a job for him. A dangerous job, but the friendship may be even more dangerous. Our story comes from April 4, 1951, and this is NBC short story, with honor. NBC presents Short Story. Tonight,
16: William Faulkner. He writes of a fabulous county in his home state of Mississippi. He writes of violence in the Southland and of the major passions which separate man from man and man from himself. He's one of the four Americans ever to win the Nobel Prize for Literature. William Faulkner. In other times, he has written of a different group of men, that restless, rootless group of young Americans who came back from the First World War and became the barnstorming pilots of aviation's infancy. Faulkner caught their language and their manners and their strange code of ethics in a manner that no other writer did. He put it all down in a novel called Pylon. And in the short story you'll hear tonight, Honor. But first, this message from the United States Marine Corps. The United States Marine is a very adaptable man. His adaptability may be largely attributed to the variety of assignments he performs in the Marine Corps and the variety of circumstances in which he serves. The Marine's assignments may take him into the fields of communication, artillery, aviation, intelligence, administration, on through a long line of more than 400 interesting specialties. The Marine is given responsible jobs to do in unusual and often unpredictable circumstances. As a result, he develops unshakable confidence and a deep sense of responsibility. These are characteristics which make him a good Marine or a good civilian, and in either case, a better American. Here now, Honor by William Faulkner.
17: Miss West was a good kid. She practically ran the Reinhardt Motor Company single-handed. Though how she put up with Reinhardt, I could never find out. He was frog-eyed with a big cigar stuck in his mouth. But Miss West was a good kid. Now and then when I had her blow off steam, she and I'd have lunch at the dairy place across the street, and I'd tell her about him, About the women. Oh, they're the worst. The women? Yeah, they're the worst.
15: Oh, what happened this morning?
17: Yeah. Remember that call to demonstrate a car for Mr. Uh, John, somebody or other? Yes. So I pull up at the address, and there they were. whole squadron of them sitting up on the porch waiting for me. Women? Mm, All sizes and shapes. They poured down the steps and piled into the car. (laughs) Said they wanted to go shopping downtown.
15: So you drove them shopping?
17: Dodged around in traffic, hunting a place to park, only there wasn't any. Miss, uh, Mrs. John, whatever her name was kept saying. Now, John insisted that I try this car, but I'm going to tell him it's foolish to buy a car that's so difficult to find parking space for as this one appears to be.
13: (laughs) For you.
15: (laughs) What'd you do, Buck?
17: I let him out at some store and drove off and left him there.
15: Wait till Mr. Reinhardt hears about this.
17: Oh, does he have to? Well... Oh, I don't know. I, (laughs) I... I can't sell automobiles or anything else. Buck, yeah?
15: You've had three or four other jobs this year, haven't you?
17: Where'd you hear that?
15: I don't know. Somebody.
17: Must have been somebody who knows me.
15: You were a pilot in the war, weren't you?
17: Yeah, that's right.
15: Well, why'd you quit flying?
17: Hmm? No reason.
15: Why don't you go back to it? No reason. Well, as you say yourself, you're not much good at selling automobiles.
17: Here's your coffee. Oh, thank you.
15: Why don't you look for a job you'd be interested in?
17: I don't know. guess I never learned to do anything interesting, except maybe to fly.
15: Mm. You do like flying.
17: Flying? Oh, it suits me right down to the ground. Uh, Sugar? Thanks. I had four years of flying, two in the war and two afterward. I stayed on after the armistice as a test pilot. That's when I took up wing walking. Don't you want sugar? Oh, yeah, thanks.
15: Did you say wing-walking?
17: a fella named Waldrip and I used to hide out in the clouds at about 3,000 feet. I'd climb out on the wing and muscle around. Whew,
15: makes me dizzy to think about it.
17: Army life gets pretty dull in peacetime. Nothing to do but lay around, lie your head off all day about how you won the war, (laughs) playing poker all night. Like more coffee?
15: No, thanks. You coming back to the office?
17: Hey, you know, I think maybe I'll take the afternoon off.
15: I won't tell Mr. (laughs)
17: Reinhardt. You're a good kid, Miss West. Good kid. (laughs) I just drifted around town that afternoon, going no place special. And I ran into one of my war buddies. Her name was Jack. Hey, Buck, what are you doing these days? Oh, selling cars. Or, uh, trying to sell
18: them. I don't know of a good wing walker looking for a job, do you? Huh? What kind of job? Barnstorm and Circus. Bird named Harris owns it. Another bird named Rogers runs it. Here in town? Yeah, you know that airfield out beyond the golf links? Yeah, sure. Yeah, they do most of their stunning
17: for state fairs. Carnivals, you know. And Rogers does most of the flying. The, uh, good pilot? Yeah, one of the best. You know what, Jack? I might take the job myself.
18: You kidding? No, I mean it. Hey, look, I'll give you a note to this bird, Rogers.
17: Yeah, it sure appreciate it.
18: Yeah, yeah, I'll write it on the back of an envelope.
17: He, uh, good guy, this Roger?
18: Oh, one of the best. Yeah, except for his wife. They say she's not happy with him.
17: Oh, so's your old man.
18: Honest, that's what they say.
17: That was how I met her. Now, I've known lots of these women. Flighty, passionate, good-looking. Plenty of flyers caught him during the war. Caught him with a set of silver wings. Yeah. Then had to run out on him first chance they got. I felt safe. I took the note to Rogers that same afternoon.
19: Jack thinks mighty highly of you. Yeah, we knew each other in the Army. I got a job open all right for a good wing walker. Well, I'm a good one. In that case, the job's yours. Yeah? When do I start? Tomorrow morning. There's a fair upstate. We'll fly up there around ten o'clock, put on a show in the afternoon.
17: Oh, well in that case I'd better go back and tell the boss I'm leaving. Why don't you come around for dinner tonight? Tonight? Wife would be
19: mighty happy to have you. Well, I seven not... o'clock?
17: Yeah. Seven o'clock. <laughs> Uh, Mr. Reinhardt in?
15: Oh, he's in conference. I didn't expect to see you again today.
17: Oh, I came back to see Reinhardt.
15: Hey, you can't go in there.
17: <laughs> You're a good kid, Miss West, but I got to see Reinhardt.
15: I told you he's busy.
14: And you'll find our new 1921 model is beyond <clears throat> anything
9: ever uh, previously Uh, Mr. Dreamed Reinhardt. My...
14: What is it, Monaghan? Can't you see I'm busy? How much notice do you want to write me off? Write you off? What are you talking about? Look here, Monaghan. I'm I... quitting. Will one day be notice enough? You've been with us three weeks, Monaghan. Not long enough to learn what that word private means on my door. Three weeks is pretty good, Mr. Reinhardt. Within two days of a record. <laughs> will uh, one day be enough notice? One minute will be enough.
15: Yes, Mr. Reinhardt. Miss
14: West, we're letting Mr. Monaghan go. Send him to the cashier. Don't bother. Keep it by yourself, a hoop. <laughs>
17: I uh, kind of expected Mrs. Rogers would be one of those long, dark, snake-like women surrounded by ostrich plumes and dime-store incense, you know, smoking cigarettes on a divan. But I was wrong. She wore an apron and one of those pale, squashy dresses. And after dinner, I helped her with the dishes.
8: Howard phoned me this afternoon. Told me you'd be coming out for dinner. Did he? Hmm.
15: I expect you're finding is a pretty dull way to spend an evening having to dry
8: dishes. I imagine you'd rather go out to dance.
17: Why do you think that?
8: Oh, I don't know.
17: What's the matter? don't I look like I could do anything else but go out dancing?
8: Oh don't you?
17: It was Rogers who stretched out on the divan while his wife sat on the floor with her head resting back against his knees. All the lights were out. Her face was
15: warm in the
8: firelight. I know you've had a dull evening, Mr. Monaghan.
17: No, not a bit of it. Hmm.
8: I told Howard you just have to take us as we are, first as well as later. Are you sorry?
17: No. No, that's just how I'd want it.
8: We don't expect you to enjoy this any more than we enjoy it. It's because we're so broke. We're just an aviator.
17: (laughs) (laughs) That's all right, too.
8: Howard's asleep?
17: Yeah. Look, uh, i better be going.
8: Oh, I'm afraid I can't move my head without waking him.
17: No, no, don't disturb him. I'll find my way out.
8: Good night, Mr. Monaghan. Yeah.
17: Thanks for dinner.
8: We'll... We'll see you again. Sure. Soon?
17: Yeah, soon. She looked about 16, especially in an apron. She even bought an apron for me to wear, and the three of us had cooked dinner.
8: When Howard told me you were a flyer that first afternoon, I said, not another wing walker, didn't I, Howard? That's right. When you're choosing a family friend, I said, why don't you choose a man we can invite to dinner a week ahead, and not only count on his being
13: here, but on his taking us out and spending his money on us. (laughs) Uh, But Howard had to choose one who was as broke as we are. (laughs)
17: Uh, I got an idea, I... I want you both to have dinner with me this week, huh? Uh, Downtown, we could take in a show. Oh, and, I didn't and mean that a... like
8: it sounded. No, of
17: course you didn't.
8: Well, That wasn't a hint to take us out.
17: Oh, I I know it wasn't.
8: Uh, well, Howard, we'll, we'll have to find Buck a girl.
19: That's an idea.
8: He's going to get tired of just us.
17: No, that'll never be.
8: Do you want us to find you a girl, Buck? Do you?
17: No.
19: No, thanks. My wife's just like all the other wives, trying to find a wife for
17: every bachelor. I guess that's a sign of a happy marriage. Think so? Sure. She wants everybody else to be as happy as she is.
8: As happy as I am? That's right, Buck. I wish every wife was as happy as I am.
17: Got so after a while when there was a high step or any of those little things which men do for women that means touching them. She turned to me like it was me was her husband and not him. Got so I was going out to their place for dinner two or three times every week. Yeah? Oh, Howard. Oh, it's you. Uh, Maybe I got the date wrong, huh? What? I mean, weren't you expecting me for dinner?
19: Sure. Come on in.
17: (laughs) Hey, something wrong?
19: A wife and I are having a little quarrel. You can sit and listen. Oh, but Howard... We have lots of these quarrels. Time you heard one. I just can't
13: stand it. I've tried and I've tried, but I just can't stand it. Hello, Buck. Oh, Mildred. I tell you, Howard, I can't stand it. I just can't take it anymore. You
19: know what my insurance rates are. If something happened, where would you be?
13: Where am I anyway? Tell me that. Ah, now, look... I mean it. But tenement woman hasn't gotten more than I've got.
19: Well, maybe you shouldn't have married a flyer. Why
13: don't you quit flying? Quit? Why not? Do something that you can get a decent insurance rate, like other men. Sit down, Buck.
17: Uh, no, thanks. (laughs) I I guess I better be getting along. I'll come to the door with you. Uh, Good night, Mildred.
13: Have dinner with us tomorrow night, Buck.
19: Maybe. I'm sorry about this, Buck. Ah, forget it. We have lots of these squabbles. They
17: don't mean anything. Uh... Look, Howard, I got a little steak in away. way. guess because I've eaten so much of your grub, I haven't had time to spend it. So, well, you know, if it's anything urgent. No, no. Of course, I wouldn't try to muscle in, where I? I wouldn't
19: don't. if I were you. See you at the field tomorrow.
17: Yeah, sure. See you at the field. <laughs> I didn't see Mildred for almost a week. Didn't hear from her. I saw him every day.
19: We got a special job next month. Yeah? What is it this time? Amusement park, a carnival. They phoned in this morning, asked if we could do a wing walking exhibition.
17: Oh, that's us.
19: Only wish we'd get more jobs like this. They get sick of hopping passengers taking up yokels who want a cheap thrill. Yeah. Uh, how's Mildred these days? Mildred? She's away. Oh? Huh? She's on a visit at her mother's. Oh.
17: For the next few weeks, I was with Howard every day, but he never mentioned her name again. Then one afternoon, he had a phone call. It came just as he was going out to the field to hop some passengers.
19: Dinner? Well, I'll ask him. Yeah, see you later. That was Mildred on the phone. Mildred?
17: When would she get back?
19: Just now. She asked for you. Did she? I want you to come out for dinner tonight. Tonight? We'll expect you around 7. See you later. I got work to do.
13: I'm back, Buck. I'm back. Don't wait until tonight.
8: Come out this afternoon. Please, Buck,
13: come
17: out now. Hey, uh, Harris? Yeah? I'm, uh, taking the afternoon off. Oh, sure, Buck, sure. Say, uh, when Howard comes back, uh, tell him I couldn't make it for dinner. She was alone, reading before the fire. Oh, Buck. It was like gasoline from a broken line blazing up around you. A Couple of days later, Howard and I took a plane up for some practice. When I got out on the wing, I looked back at Howard's face behind the windscreen, wondering what he knew. Must have found out almost at once. She didn't have any discretion at all. She'd say and do things insist on sitting close to me, looking at me in that way she did, even when Howard was looking at both of us. I unfastened my belt and crawled out on the wing, looked back at his face, and wondered what he was thinking. How much did he know or suspect I wondered? So I'd stall around every afternoon till I saw Howard was lined up for the rest of the day, and then I'd give some excuse to Harris and beat it. One afternoon, I was all ready to go, and waiting for Howard to take off, when he came across the field to me.
19: Buck. Yeah, Howard? go off. I want to see you.
17: Yeah, sure, Howard. What is it?
19: You haven't been out to the house for dinner since Mildred got back.
17: That's right, I haven't.
19: Come out tonight.
17: Tonight? Hold on, tonight. Sure, hon. Tonight. Mm. I knew then that he knew. When I got to the house, they were waiting for me. She had on one of those squashy dresses. She came and put her arms around me and kissed me, with him watching.
13: Mildred. Buck. Buck, I'm going
8: with you.
19: What? That's right, Buck.
8: We've talked it over, and we've both agreed that we couldn't love one another anymore after this. What are you saying?
13: Howard can find a woman he can love. A woman that's not... not bad like I am. Is
17: that right, Howard? That's right, Buck. He sat there looking at me. And it heard. And I was thinking, thinking that Howard and I were in a plane. And I was out on a wing. And I just found that Howard had thrown the stick away and was flying around the rudder alone. And he knew that I knew the stick was gone. So it was all right now, whatever happened. Buck. She was holding back and looking up in my face. Buck.
13: Don't you love me anymore?
17: What?
8: If you love me, say so.
17: But Mildred...
8: I've told him all about us. I've told him everything. Oh,
17: Mildred,
13: Mildred. Say it, Buck. Say you love me.
17: What, what do you want me to do, Howard? What do I want you to do? Yeah. Will you give her a divorce?
13: Oh, Buck. You won't say it. You've been lying to me. You didn't mean what you said. Mildred. <laughs> what have I done? What have I done?
20: Sure, Mildred, I love you.
13: Well, then tell Howard. Tell him what you say to me when we're alone. Oh, go ahead. He knows everything.
17: Everything? Do you, Howard? Do you know everything? Doesn't matter. Do you love her?
19: Yes, Howard. You be good to her? Yeah. You want to marry her?
20: Yes, Howard, Yes! <laughs>
17: I finally, got away, the divorce was all settled. It was as easy as that. Next morning, when I reached the field, Harris, the bird who owns the place, was waiting for
16: me. Hey, you didn't forget, Buck. You got that special job today.
17: Special job? Hey, you and Rogers.
16: You're doing a wing walking show for that carnival.
17: Uh, I won't fly with Howard today.
16: What are you talking about?
17: Better ask him.
16: But if he agrees to fly you, will you go up?
17: All right. If he agrees. Oh, it said he'd fly me. And that's when I realized he must have remembered about the job all the time. He'd laid for me. Sucked me in. I waited until Harris left the field, and then I turned on him.
20: All right, Howard. So this is why you were so mealy-mouthed last night, huh? What are you talking about? Well, you got me now, haven't you? Right where you want me, out on a wing. Take this stick
19: yourself. Huh? You do the flying. I'll do the wing walking. Yeah, i sure you feel good. You got me. Come on. Why don't you grin on the outside of your face? Come on! Let me have your shoes. I haven't got any with rubber soles. Give me your shoes, and I'll do
17: your tricks. No. All right, get in the seat. We're going up. You're not afraid? What does it matter? Guess I'd do the same thing in your place. You're really going through with
19: it?
20: Yes, I'm going through with it.
17: (laughs) Job was over an amusement park, a carnival. Must have been 25,000 ants down there watching us. I was a little crazy. I went back to the center section and cast a rope loose it loops around the forward jury struts. I got set against it and looked at Howard. I gave him the signal.
20: I was a little crazy. The wires began to whine. And I was looking straight down at the ground, down at the ends. Then the wires were whistling proper and he gunned it. The ground began to slide back under the nose. I waited until it was gone, and I couldn't see anything but sky. Then I let go one end of the rope and held my arms out as she zoomed into the loop. I wasn't trying to kill myself. I wasn't even thinking about myself. I was thinking about him, about Howard, trying to show him up like he'd shown me up, give him something he must fail at, like he'd given me something I'd fail at. I was trying to break him. We were over the loop before he lost me. The ground had come back, and then the pressure went off my soles, and I lost my balance. I was falling. I made a half somersault was just going into the first turn of a flat spin with my face to the sky when <laughs> something had banged me in the back. For a second, I'd been completely out. Then I opened my eyes. I was lying on my back. On the top wing, my head hanging over the back edge. I was too far down the slope of the camera to bend my knees over the leading edge. I could feel the wing creeping under me. but I couldn't dare move. I knew if I tried to sit up against the slipstream, I'd go off backward. I could see the tail on the horizon, that we were in a shallow dive. I could see Howard standing up in his cockpit, unfastening his belt. I could turn my head a little more and see that when I fell off, I'd missed the fuselage altogether. Or maybe when I fell off, I'd missed the fuselage and hit with my shoulder. I lay there with the wing creeping under me, creeping, feeling my shoulders beginning to hang over space, counting my backbones as they crept over the edge, watching Howard crawl forward along the fuselage toward the front seat. I watched him for a long time. He was inching himself along, against the pressure. His trouser legs whipping. A long time. After a while, I saw his legs slide into the front cockpit. Then his body. Then his arms reached up for me. his fingertips touch me. His hands caught me, and I felt him pulling me back back. Back to safety. Buck,
17: I was
19: afraid I'd be too late.
17: How'd you find out I was leaving? I went to the airfield.
19: Harris told me.
17: Here, this is for you. Yeah?
19: What is it? It's a note from her, from Mildred. Oh? What are you doing? I don't want to read it, no matter what's in it. Don't be a fool.
13: What? What? Well,
19: bye hard. What'll I tell Mildred?
17: Oh? Tell her I said goodbye. That's all. Goodbye. And? That's all. They got a kid now, Howard and Mildred. Boy of six. Howard wrote me. Months afterward, the letter caught up with me. You know, I'm the kid's godfather. Funny to have a godfather that's never seen you
16: and that you'll never see. You have heard Honor by William Faulkner. The adaptation was by Vincent McConnor. In tonight's cast, Buck was Paul Freese. Miss West was Helen Andrews. Jack was Tom Holland. Rogers was Barney Phillips, Mr. Reinhardt was Charles Anderson, Mildred was Lynn Allen, Harris was Jonathan Hole, your announcer, Don Stanley. The director of NBC Presents Short Story is Andrew C. Love. Be with us again two weeks from tonight at this same time as NBC Presents Short Story. At that time, a high powered short story of life among the climbers and the sought after. The story, Beautiful Summer in Newport by Felicia Gyshiska. Hear it next week. And in the meantime, bear in mind this message from the United States Marine Corps. The United States Marine Corps is a highly complex organization. More than 400 different specialized skills are required to make it a smooth working, swift moving team. Operating as it does, the Marine Corps needs an adaptable young man, one who can become a specialist and at the same time develop into an all-around Marine capable of holding his own under any and all circumstances. In assigning his duties, his superiors are careful, taking into consideration his personal capabilities and aptitudes. The Marine is offered the opportunity to learn a great variety of skills. Soon he finds out that he can get along anywhere, that he has learned how to cope with almost any problem that he's likely to meet. A Marine's confidence and self-sufficiency represent a tremendous asset, not only to him, but also to his corps and his country. This program came to you from Hollywood. This is NBC, the national broadcasting company.
0: NBC Short Story with Honor, based on a story by William Faulkner, one of the most influential of American writers. A rough outing for uh, Mildred, who goes back to Howard. Some great wing-walking scenes in there, though. It's almost reminiscent of that uh, early, early Gary Cooper silent film, Wings. The broadcast of NBC Short Story came to us from April 4th, 1951. And now, get ready for part two of Adventures by Morse on Skywave Audio Theater. Carlton E. Morse produced radio's immensely popular serial, I Love a Mystery. And as I mentioned last week, he also wrote a soap opera called One Man's Family, which ran from 1932 to 1959 and had the honor of being satirized by Bob and Ray. For his year-long series, Adventures by Morse, he wrote a three-part series called A Coffin for the Lady, starring Elliot Lewis and Barton Yarborough. Last week, we launched into Part 1. And if you missed it, or if you have a short memory, don't worry, because Captain Friday will catch you up on all the action. Here's Part 2 of A Coffin for the Lady, Adventures by Morse, from April 7th, 1946.
21: Adventures by Morse. Carlton E. Morse presents A Coffin for the Lady, featuring Captain Friday. If you like high adventure,
22: come with me. If you like the stealth of intrigue, come with me. If you like blood and thunder, come with me.
21: The evening dusk was fast settling on Port Lancer, far up on the Canadian coastline, as Captain Friday and his operative, Skip Turner, picked up the trail of Judith Wright. She led them down the main street of the Canadian seaport village, and then off into the woods. She finally came to a log cabin, just as darkness settled, knocked, and was received inside. Captain Friday and Skip tiptoed to the window. But let Captain Friday tell you what brought them to this out-of-the-world settlement. My office
22: in San Francisco was approached by a Major Lawrence of a branch of Army Intelligence. I was asked to bring one of my men and do a job for the government. I chose Skip Turner as he was a good outdoor man and was fast with his fists in a tight place. We were transported by seaplane and put down in an isolated cove off the coast of Canada. There was a fast speedboat waiting for us. With Major Lawrence, we crossed over to a tiny atoll called Marmaduke Island, some ten miles from the mainland. Major Lawrence hit us in the underbrush, near the shore, and told us to be ready for action at any moment. Then he went inland. At the end of three hours, a man in the uniform of a G.I. burst into view, carrying a girl in his arms. And in his back was a knife blade. The girl was bound and gagged. The G.I. lived long enough to gasp, Get the girl to Port Lancer. And then he died. We grabbed her up just as rifle fire began to pour in on us from behind. We got her on the boat and got her to the mainland where horses had
23: been planted for us. In
22: six hours, we were in Port
23: Lancer. Yeah, Captain, but once in Port Lancer, stuff began to happen. All right, Skip, you tell it. Well, we took our horses to the only stable in the dump. And what did the old Cooter run the stable try to do but knock Captain Friday and me over the head? Well, in a rumpus, Judith, that was the girl's name, Judith Wright tried to give us a slip, and that's when we followed her. We slipped up to the window and peeked in, and there she was, laying on the floor. And some big goon was picking her up and putting her in a coffin. I'm telling you the honest truth. There was a coffin there, sitting on two chairs. And this guy in the room picked up the girl and put her in it. And she wasn't dead, either. I saw her face.
24: And just at that point, a voice said... If of you gentlemen so much as twitch an eyebrow, I'll blast you to kingdom come.
23: Captain Friday, did you hear what I did? Yeah. Well, are we gonna take it? Put up your hands, Skip.
24: Don't be a fool. Very excellent advice, Captain Friday. So our hands are up, so what do we do now? March over to the front door. Go on, Skip. But, Cap, it... Do I have to tell you twice? You're the boss. That's far enough. You want me to open the door? Keep your hands right where they are. Hobbit! Didn't hear you. Capestale.
12: What is the matter? Oh, who are these
24: men? Search me. Found them peeking in the window.
12: What is that?
24: Yeah. I thought you'd want to interview them.
12: Yes, come in, gentlemen.
24: Sure. Hello. Wolf skins
22: and bear rugs on the floor.
12: You will please keep your hands up. Close the door, English. Yeah. I have them covered. Take away their weapons.
24: We don't carry guns. Search them. It's a pleasure. If you touch my extra pack of cigarettes, I'll, I'll
12: steal you. Uh. What is your name? You're talking to me? I am. Bart Friday.
24: This other guy called him Captain. Okay, Captain Bart Friday. The title's honorary. Yeah, I see. And this man, what's his name? My sidekick, Skip Turner. Eh? nothing on either of them, Abbott.
12: You can put your hands down.
24: Okay, to smoke.
12: Go ahead. Sit down if you wish. Thanks, we'll stand. Suit yourself. Now then, what are you two men doing here? We're strangers here.
22: We got away from Port Lancer and got a little mixed up. That's shall lie. They trailed a girl here.
12: You saw them? I did. Uh, what do you men say to that? Then
22: you admit you're holding Judith Wright prisoner. Judith? Who is Judith Wright? That blonde, blue-eyed girl who came in this cabin less than 15 minutes ago.
12: Her name is Judith Wright? That's the name we know her by. What did
22: you do? Invite her in and then slug her behind the ear? That is rather
23: a strange accusation. Oh, don't try to be so mealy mouth. We got a glimpse in the window. We saw her stretched out on the floor. We saw you pick her up and put her in a coffin. Coffin? That's what I said, coffin.
12: You, you saw me pick up this, uh, this uh, Judith Wright girl and put her in the coffin?
23: You're repeating yourself.
12: But you can see for yourself, there is no coffin.
22: That curtain wasn't pulled across the far end of the cabin when we looked in the window. Are you saying
12: that I have a coffin hidden behind that curtain?
23: A coffin with a girl in it.
12: English.
24: Yeah, I've been...
12: Pull that curtain aside. These men apparently have hallucinations. Go ahead, pull it back.
24: Sure, why not? There you are.
12: Hey, Captain. As you can see for yourself, these are my sleeping quarters.
23: There was a coffin in here.
12: My good man.
23: Don't give me none of that my good man stuff. I saw what I saw.
12: But you can see for yourself. There is only one entrance to the cabin. One door and one window. You came in the front door, and the window is nailed shut, as you may observe.
22: There's a closet over there. What's in that?
12: You may look for yourself. Thanks.
23: Uh, What's in there, Captain Friday? Canned goods.
22: Looks like you're planning to hole up for the winter.
12: Does that satisfy you?
22: Oh, you must have done it with mirrors, or else we were mistaken. We saw what we saw.
12: English. Yeah, I'll be tie them
24: up. B- with pleasure. Here, put your hands behind you. Captain, are we Put your hands behind you? Better do it, Skip.
12: Oh,
23: the way we get pushed around.
24: Look, how would you like to be a limp body on the floor? Put your hands behind you, or I'll give you a headache with the butt of my gun. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. That's
23: better. But I don't have to like. Hey. You don't have to cut my wrists in, too. Yeah, well,
24: when I tie a man's hands behind them, they stay tight. <coughs> yeah. Those buckskin thongs don't hold you till you rot. up. All right, now, you. Go ahead. Oh, <laughs> nice and tame, huh? Well, that don't mean you're not going to get tied up just as tight as your partner. <coughs> you're <coughs> cutting off the circulation, you know that. Yeah, uh, it's just a burning shame now, ain't it? <coughs> Eh. Now what, Abbott?
12: Take them out to the stable and tie their feet and lock them in. You
24: want them gagged?
12: Why bother? No one can hear them.
24: All right. Okay, outside, you two. You coming, Abbott?
12: No. Time is getting short. You take care of them.
24: Sure. I said, come on, you two. Close the door, Hubbard. Now, down the steps and take the path to the left, around the cabin.
5: Huh?
23: What's that? Sounds like a wolf. That ain't what the wolves sound like down in California.
5: You're
22: thinking of the Hollywood kind. This is the real McCoy.
24: When you hear a dog howl like that, they say he's sitting on somebody's grave. Never mind the conversation. Take the path to the right. Right through the bushes? Right through the bushes. All right, hold it.
23: Hey, there is a building back here. Hidden back here in the brush.
24: OK, inside with you now. Well, it's a barn, all right, but no horses. Hay on the floor, though. OK, both of you lie down on the floor. Now, just a minute. <coughs> Why, you lousy. <coughs> Hitting a man with his hands tied. When I tell you to do something, I don't want any back talk. Now lie down on the floor. Come on, Skip. Yeah. Okay. All right, turn around your faces and stretch out. Great stuff.
23: I just love being somebody's prisoner.
24: Yeah. Put your feet together. Yeah. I'll lace your ankles together with this buckskin thong. I want you boys to be here when we get back. Why don't you just saw my feet off and be done with it? Yeah.
23: Now you. Feet together.
22: You know, a person could freeze to death in a place like this overnight, this kind of weather.
24: It's a thought. <clears throat> yeah. Now, you two boys, just make yourselves at home. I gotta be gone. If you get cold, you can play Eskimo.
23: Now I ain't this
22: great. Listen, Skip, they didn't examine my shoes. I've still got that razor blade tucked in the sole of my shoe. Hey, I forgot about that. Squirm around in the hay. If you can get your fingers on it. Yeah. No, my left shoe. Yeah, that's it. All right, run your fingers along the edge of the sole.
23: With my hands behind me, tied so tight it... Oh there, there! I felt it. Yeah,
22: can you pull it out? Yeah. My fingers so numb. Yeah. I got it. I got it. Got it, boy. Now, squirm around so we're back to back. Yeah. Then you can cut through my wristbands. Yeah. <coughs> yeah. Okay, how's that?
23: I'm having a heck of a time hanging onto the razor blade. It's so thin and my hands are so nice.
22: Hey, hang on to it. If you ever drop it in this hay, we'll never find it. I think I'm getting it. I'm sawing on something. It's the buckskin thongs. Keep at it. Hey, you got it. My hands are free. Good boy, Skip. Now, let me take the blade, I'll have you free. Boy. My hands feel like I was wearing boxing gloves myself. Here. There you are. Oh, it's well. Now I'll cut our ankles free. Yeah, that's mine. Hold still a minute. Yeah, there you are. And now let's get out of this place and settle up with a couple of ugly customers. Why do I slip this blade back in the sole of my shoe? Let's don't go off half-cocked. About what? I mean, let's don't go rushing around until we get this thing figured out. Well, we know that Judith Wright went into the cabin. We saw her. And we saw a coffin through the window. But neither Judith nor the coffin were in the cabin when we went in. They had to be. You got any ideas?
23: No. Have you?
22: How about a trap door in the floor? Hey, of course. I think so, too. And I didn't like the way that Abed Bird said they didn't have much time. Much time for what? Search me. Well, I think it concerned Judith right in the coffin.
23: Well, then, brother, we better get out of here and fast. Okay.
22: We'll work on the principle that there was a trap door, and the girl was hidden below in the basement.
23: Mm. How are we going to get out of here? Break down the door? Mm, Can't make too much noise. What else? There's no windows, and it'd take a coon's age to cut through these logs. Let's look around a minute. hay all over the floor.
22: Yeah, plenty of hay, but it doesn't look or smell like there's ever been a horse in here.
23: I wouldn't know. I'm strictly a city boy myself. Let's walk along this passage. Maybe there's another one. Look
22: out! Oh. Skip! Skip, Skippy, all right? I guess so. What happened? We fell through a hole in the floor. It was covered with hay. But where are we now? I don't know. About 10 feet underground would be my
5: guess.
21: What has become of the girl in the coffin? Are Captain Friday and Skip in a trap? Or will this underground passage lead toward the solution of events? Is Judith Wright friend or enemy? And who are English and Ovid? But more of this in just a moment.
22: If we've fallen down an old well. Who dig a well under the floor of a barn? Besides, look, there's a passage leading off to the left. What
23: do you mean, look? so black in this hole in the ground i know
22: it but we can feel our way along
23: yeah and probably fall in some underground river and we never will be heard of again a very sad state of affairs nevertheless take hold of my coattail keep close to me Uh, you wouldn't have a flashlight on you never mind i got a box of matches well don't you think we ought to make a little fire and see what kind of a hole we got here i already know and keep your voice down what's the matter you afraid keep still
22: there's a light up ahead daylight it was after dark when we fell into this hole, you dope. Oh, yeah. Well, what you guess it is? I think this passage is leading us back to the basement under the cabin. Hey, if that's the way it is... On. Make it easy on the footsteps. Yeah.
23: Hold it. It's a cellar under the cabin, all right. Yeah. Look, Skip, the coffin. You were right. They lowered it into the basement when we come in the front door. Yeah
22: doesn't seem to be anybody on guard.
23: Well, what are we waiting for? If Judas laid out in that co- closet...
22: Easy there, Skip. Keep on your tiptoes. Nice cement basement they got here. Never mind. Captain Friday,
23: they got the lid screwed down on the casket. You sure? Yeah, look. Just freshly screwed down. Mm-hmm.
22: Here's the screwdriver they used. Handle's still warm. You
23: think the girl's inside?
22: We saw them put her in. But she was alive. Hey, wait a minute. Hey, what are you doing?
23: I just thought if she was alive in there...
22: Hey, hey, you hear that? Listen. Try it again. Now listen. There it is. She's alive in
23: there. Oh, damn dirty. Here, give me that screwdriver. Can you imagine anybody?
22: cruel enough to bury a beautiful girl alive. Yeah, especially a
24: beautiful girl.
22: Yeah, especially a...
23: Okay, okay. (laughs) What are you doing?
22: i found another screwdriver. Quicker, we get that lid off. Yeah, I got two of them out. Come out easy. Just freshly screwed in. Mm -hmm. Trouble is, I don't get the idea. Judith Wright gave us the slip to come here of her own free will.
23: Why'd she want to get herself buried alive? She don't. Nobody does. Somebody's double-crossing her. There. They're all out on my side. I got one more. Here, let me take it. Uh, I was apprenticed out to a carpenter when I was a kid.
22: Amazing how much light one coal oil lantern gives off. Mm -hmm. Lights up this whole basement. You got it? Yeah. Now,
23: let's slide this lid off. Okay.
22: Up with it. Heavy. Yeah, easy. (coughs)
23: <coughs> okay, that's enough. Who are you? Hello, Judith. The Marines have landed.
25: You? It is you?
22: Yes, Miss Wright. Who did you expect? You
25: fools. You unutterable, meddlesome fools.
22: Hey, Here, yeah, let me help you out of that casket.
25: You keep your hands off me. You keep away from me. You mean you like it in there? They said you are prisoners. How did you escape?
13: Well, we're like
23: that. If Houdini could do it, Skip Turner and Cap Friday can do it. Oh, this is rather ridiculous.
22: Look. Do you mean to say you refuse to get up out of that coffin? All I tell you is,
23: go away. We're supposed to be protecting you. I do not wish protecting. You mean you just want us to go away and let them bury you alive in peace, is that it?
25: Bury me alive? Is that what you said? Bury me alive?
23: Well, that's usually what to do with folks that put in caskets, ain't it? Bury them.
25: I never heard such crazy talk in my life.
23: What's your idea of what they're going to do with you, Miss Wright?
25: That I do not wish to talk about.
23: But you don't expect
22: to be stowed away in the ground.
25: Stop talking about things like that. I. Huh?
12: What's the matter? If either of you men move...
22: Uh Uh-oh, here we go again, our friend Abid.
12: Be quiet. If either man moves, he will be shot in the back. How did you guys sneak in here? I said be quiet. Mr. English, use that blackjack.
24: With
23: pleasure. (laughs) Hey, hitting a man behind the ear with his hands up.
13: Oh!
12: Good. That... That was terrible. Exactly what they deserved. Now then, Mr. English, tie these men up this time so they will stay tied.
24: All I can do is my best.
12: And make it quickly. And then screw the lid back on this casket. And we will get the girl and coffin away from here.
22: Oh. Oh, my head. Skip. Skip, wake up. Uh, uh. Skip, wake up. Come on. He didn't hit you that hard. Oh, what fell on me? They sapped us with a
23: blackjack. Uh Huh? Oh, oh, yeah. Oh, what a head I got.
22: And more than that, we're cinched up again with buckskin thorns.
23: Oh, just let me lay here and die. Come on.
22: You got to use that safety razor blade again. You think you can get it out of the sole of my shoe? Where are we? In the basement of the cabin. Uh,
23: laying on this cold cement floor ain't going to help my arthritis. Uh, hey, is the casket gone? And the girl. Well, she asked for it. What kind of a dame would want a hole up in a casket anyway? Come
22: on, come on. Squirm around on the floor and try to get the razor blade. <coughs> 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 How's that? I don't think... Oh, yeah. Yeah, I got it. Yeah, good boy.
23: We ain't repeating ourselves by any chance. Never
22: mind that. It's a good gag as long as it works. Now, slide around here so we're back-to-back back and saw my bonds loose again. Why do the dirty villains always have to tie your hands behind you? That's what makes them villains. <laughs> Can you reach me? Uh, I'm
23: cutting on something. Oh, That's my wrist, you dumb half well, My fingers are so numb. <laughs> Oh, that's it. Now you got the bombs. Hey, look, Captain, the next time anybody wants to tie us up, let's put up a fight. Yeah, according to how many guns they got pointed
22: at my spine.
23: Yeah,
22: oh, that's it. Okay, now give it to me and
23: I'll cut you free. Oh, it won't be no use. I'm gonna lay right here and die anyhow. There. Now your ankles. Mm.
22: Man, he sure cinched up on these thongs. Yeah. Here uh, Alright, get up and move around while I cut me free. I couldn't move. Get up, Skip. Get that circulation started. You'll feel better. Yeah. Okay, just tuck the blade back in the sewer. We'll shoot. There we
23: are. Now, come on. Up on your feet. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like I'm walking around on the stumps of my
22: ankles. Oh, same here. Oh, it'll be a... Come on, move around. Oh, doggone torture chamber. Hey, look there. Step's going up to the trap door on the floor above.
23: Is that where they come from when they nailed us? Yeah. Let's try it. The trap door's probably locked.
22: Well, all we can do is try... I still ain't got full control over my feet. Yeah, circulation's beginning to take hold. Uh, Oh, just a minute.
23: Hey, the trap door's unfastened.
22: Yeah, it seems to be... Up we go. There it is. Okay, come on up. Uh-huh.
23: Shall I close the trap door again? Yeah, I might as well. Now what? Huh? Well, now that we're up here, what?
22: I'm looking for something that'll give us a clue.
23: About the coffin? Where they're taking a coffin with a live girl inside it. Well, it's got to be some place a girl wants to go... ...on account of she's cooperating with her kidnappers like nobody's business. Yeah. He's putting a lot of trust in friend, Obid. Mm, I wouldn't trust that East Indian with a plume-tailed polecat. Huh. huh? What you got there? Never mind. Come on. You mean outside? I mean down at the waterfront.
22: Come on. What's down at the waterfront? That's where they've taken the girl. You mean they're taking her down and dumping her in the harbor? Don't be so dumb. There's a steamship in the harbor. We heard the whistles earlier tonight.
23: Stowaway. That's what this is all about. She's going aboard in a coffin as a stowaway. Well,
22: one idea has penetrated that thick skull anyway. Well. Come on. If we cut through this underbrush, we'll save a little time.
13: And get all our
23: clothes torn off the boot. There
22: now. You can see the lights of the harbor through the trees. Running through leaves up to my knees. We'll be through them in a minute.
23: I feel like I was trying to run on inner spring mattresses.
22: Yeah. Here we are. Here's where we hit the main street. Now, just another block and a half to the waterfront. Wonder we ain't broke our necks in the dark. Hey. Hey, listen. That ship's more than a block and a half away. She's pulled out into the harbor. Come on.
23: You mean the boat's gone with our baby in the coffin? Well, what did it sound like to you? Well, maybe she missed the boat too. Oh, you're a great help. Hey, there's a group of people down on the wharf. They got the floodlights on. I'm more interested in that searchlight out in the bay. That's our ship pulling out. Hey, let's ask somebody if the casket went aboard, huh? Hey! Hey, you, did they take... Well, if it ain't Mr. English.
24: How oh, did you two men? Make... Never mind about that. Did that casket go aboard? Now, look, Joe. Oh,
23: answer Captain Friday when it talks to you.
22: Yeah. Well, supposing it did. Was a girl in it? Careful, Skip, the crowd's drifting over this way.
23: Well, we got what we want out of this bird. Now, for a little revenge... Skip! Oh, Skip, I wanted him conscious. Well, you should have talked faster, then. Here, here, what's going on?
24: Major Lawrence! Captain Friday, Turner... What are you two doing here? We thought we left you dead on Marmaduke Island. Never mind that, why are you here? Did
22: you see a coffin put on that ship out there? Coffin? Yes, a dead Chinese being returned. Dead Chinese, my eye. That was Judith Wright in that coffin. What, the girl we... Yes, and if we don't stop that ship, she's headed right straight for the Bay of Bengal Slave Market. (laughs)
21: For the Bay of Bengal slave market. What does that mean? Why is Major Lawrence of military intelligence interested in this headstrong Norwegian girl? And why is she so anxious to put herself into the hands of unscrupulous persons? The answers to all these questions will be given next week when you will hear the closing episode of A Coffin for the Lady, the new series in Adventures by Morse. Listen next week at this same time for episode three entitled. The deepest grave in the world. This is a Cartony Morse production.
0: As the saying goes, the plot thickens out there in those cold Canadian Pacific waters. Can Captain Friday and Skip Turner save the prickly Judith Wright from the Bengali slave market? And why is she resisting their efforts to help her? Questions to be answered next week in the third and final episode of A Coffin for the Lady. Episode 2 came from April 7, 1946. And we're off now to the snow-clad slopes of Switzerland with The Adventures of Frank Race, next on Skywave Audio Theatre. The title of the series gives you the picture. Although Frank Race did investigate cases of insurance fraud, he was as much an adventurer as a detective and a very self-confident adventurer at that. I don't think he ever has a misstep, does he? Well, will be listening this week and maybe you'll hear one. I doubt it, though. He was, after all, a former operative of the OSS, as we hear at the beginning of each week's adventure. And Enoch Arden, well... He was the subject of an 1864 poem by Alfred Lord Tennyson, which tells the story of a man lost at sea for ten years, a man who returns to find that his wife, thinking him dead, has remarried. And laws having to do with people missing for a number of years are called Enoch Arden laws. And they come into play in this week's episode of The Adventures of Frank Race. Tom Collins stars in The Enoch Arden Adventure from April 2nd, 1949. The Adventures of Frank Race, starring Tom Collins.
14: The war changed many things, the face of the earth and the people on it. Before the war, Frank Race worked as an attorney, but he traded his law books for the cloak and dagger of the OSS. When it was over, his former life was over too. Adventure had become his business. The Adventures of Frank Race. (laughs) Now we join Frank Race for the Enoch Arden Adventure.
26: It was one of those places that features music, not only for atmosphere, but also to drown out the cries of the patrons when they get their checks. Mine was a mellow mood. I expected to be joined at any moment by a creature both feminine and alluring. So I was settling myself for a gentle and interesting evening when...
11: But
20: I cannot admit you,
18: monsieur. Hey, Ray, right, tell these guys you know me, will
11: you? Don't
26: make a scene, Henri. Let the gentleman in. Yeah, you
18: see, wise guy.
11: Wise
26: guy. What's the pitch, Mung? I got a dame in the cab. She wants to see you. Why didn't she come in? She's supposed to meet me here.
18: Huh? You expecting a dame?
26: Well, you don't think I'd go white tie to dine alone, do you?
18: Uh, I got me feelin a feeling the dame in my cab ain't the one you're expecting.
26: Blonde, statuesque, rather beautiful.
18: Uh uh-uh. uh, redhead, stacked, completely a pit.
26: That good? Mm-mm. All right, you sold me.
18: Henri. Uh, you wish something, Monsieur Ace? Yeah,
26: There'll be a lady seeking me. I've uh, I've been taken suddenly ill. Ill? Eh? You'll
20: make it convincing. Hmm? Oh, but of course, Monsieur Ace, you are dying. <laughs>
26: steal a phrase from mark the lady in the cab was a pip i had a look at her while lighting a cigarette held the match until it almost burned my fingers then i sat back to await developments
27: i'm hillary stewart i have a personal problem that i think you could help me with race a matter of insurance the policy is for half a million dollars
26: something tells me the insurance is on your husband's life yes and at the moment he's alive
27: i don't know You see, Grace, I'm... I'm 26 years old. I was married eight years ago. Almost seven years ago, my husband disappeared. Disappeared? Just disappeared. Police had the case, there was a lot of publicity, and...
26: Oh, yes, yes, I remember. Martin Stewart, senior partner in the importing firm of Stewart Ronick, wasn't
27: he? That's right. And in this state, when a person's been missing for seven years, they... He may
26: be declared legally dead under the Enoch Arden law which would make that little insurance policy of yours payable.
27: You cover ground quickly, Mr. Race. Well,
26: with half a million dollars, I'm afraid I can't see where you'd have any problems.
27: Do you think the insurance company will be inclined to pay all that money without investigation? No.
26: I think they'll investigate all over the place. But if everything's above board...
27: Suppose they were to find that my husband had been murdered.
26: Well, would be important only if you murdered him. Did you?
27: That's what I mean. That's why I want you to look into the affair for my protection. Will you take the case?
26: have dinner with me. Coax me a little.
27: I'd like that, but I can't. Not tonight. Tomorrow, perhaps?
26: Let's drop the perhaps.
27: All right. And now, if I could be transferred to another cab, I must go home.
26: We'll we'll take you home. Where to?
27: Sumter Terrace. 14.50. (laughs)
26: Sumter Terrace is an exclusive district. One of those streets where tall, thin trees line the curbs and short, fat women parade their dogs. There was a man standing before the entrance to number 1450 as I escorted Hillary Stewart up the steps. She spoke to him.
27: Hello, Gary. Uh, I'm sorry I'm late.
26: I've been waiting an hour. I'm
27: truly sorry. I'll go in and get ready right away. Thanks a lot, Mr. Race. If you'll call for me...
26: Tomorrow. I'll remember. (laughs) to go into the building then I turned toward Mark in the cab but I didn't go toward them Gary was there on the steps blocking the way to the street
11: stay away from her, understand? now you're making
26: me very sad it's practically an engraved invitation to come back
7: yeah? and what's this?
26: his punch nailed me to the wall of the building his outline danced in front of me as I fought to breathe to stay upright I was conscious of his grinning at me, an ugly grin. Then he pulled the door open and went inside.
18: Hey! Hey,
26: what went on there? What, oh. what goes on a no, just
18: embarrassed,
26: Mark. Yeah, I'll be all right. in uh, a second.
18: I thought I saw him throw a snake punch at dirty lowdown. No good. What are you slugging?
26: Well, I digest my food. I
18: went inside. I'll go in and beat his brains.
26: No, not now, Mark. I can take care of myself. I have an idea. We'll be seeing him again. The enforced soup diet that Gary had thrust upon me was wearing on my nerves by the next evening. My appetite was back in working order and my spirits were high, but the housekeeper who answered the door at the residence of Hillary Stewart sent them into a nosedive.
25: I don't understand it, sir. She left no messages.
26: You have no idea where she can be reached, huh?
25: Well, she took a plane last night to Europe. To Europe? Last night? Yes, sir. To Zurich, Switzerland. Perhaps you could write to her there at the Hotel Metropole.
26: Zurich. I don't suppose you have any idea of why she went there.
25: Well, Mr. Stewart, God rest him, used to have a branch of his company there. I think uh, Mr. Romick, his partner, works from there now.
26: I take it you've been with Mrs. Stewart for some time?
25: Oh, yes, sir. I was Mr. Stewart's housekeeper for 10 years before he married her. I
26: understand he disappeared not long after the wedding.
25: Yes. Happened right here in this very room. It was a Sunday afternoon. He we was listening to the radio. And then the news came over that Pearl Harbor had been bombed. Mm-hmm. Mr. Stewart, he didn't say a word. He got up and walked out of the house and we never saw him or, or heard of him again.
26: Mm. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. With Hillary Stewart running out on me, my first reaction was an impulse to flip the whole thing. I can do without women to play games, even glamorous redheads. But I thought of her playmate Gary and that sneak punch, and decided that I had to see that boy again. The way he'd acted made me certain I'd find him wherever I'd find Hillary. I played a hunch. I went into a phone booth and called several of the bigger life insurance companies. And I hit the jackpot when I spoke to Steve Watson, vice president in charge of claims at Columbia Life Plan. Yes,
17: Rice. We issued the policy on Stewart's life. Why?
26: Well, I just think the claim's a little fuzzy.
17: Huh?
26: I'd check some more before paying off.
17: Oh. I wish you'd have told me that a little bit sooner. claim was paid off in full yesterday. Yesterday? That's right.
26: And she'd already collected when I met her.
17: Hmm? What's that race?
26: Uh, nothing, nothing, Steve.
17: Wait a minute. You got something on your mind. Spill
26: it. Hey, look, Steve, let me throw you a proposition. I think that claim's off base. Let me look into it. And if I come up with something, I'm working for you. And if I fail, I'm on my own.
5: That's the deal. Where can I reach you?
26: Make it care of American Express. Zurich, Switzerland.
7: Switzerland
26: land of peace and comparative plenty, nestling in the heart of a war-torn and starving continent. Setting down on the runway of the Zurich airport was different from most European landings. There were no bomb-shattered buildings, no rubble-choked streets. Mark and I smudged the register at the Hotel Metropole. I found Hilary Stewart's name in the book, but she wasn't in, so I left Mark at the hotel and located the office of Stewart Rummick. Guten Tag. Guten Tag. I'm looking for a... Oh, um, Ich bin... <laughs> An American. Well, don't <laughs> struggle with the lingo, pal. Let's just talk United States. Oh, Gladly. Now, I always have trouble with my umlauts. <laughs> <laughs> so do I. Hey, where are you from? New York. Ah, no place like it. Hey, I used to play ball for the Dodgers mm. two years with them before Uncle Robbie traded me. Third base. Yeah, in the hot corner. <laughs> yeah... Yeah, that was a long time ago. What did you say your name was? Frank Race. Mm. And um, I'm looking for a young lady I think you may know. Hillary Stewart? Why, sure I do. I was her husband's partner. I'm Pete Ramek, and you're in luck. Hillary's in the other office. Came in a few minutes ago. Come on. In. Hillary was sitting beside her desk, sipping hot chocolate. There was no flicker of surprise in her eyes when she saw me. We were still playing a game, and she was winning. Because I could see that she had been expecting me. Behind the desk sat a dark-skinned man who might have been from the Mediterranean area. I had a feeling that at home he'd have been wearing a turban. He was introduced as Sutra Heyman, manager of the office.
11: You have just arrived in Switzerland, Mr. Rice? A few hours ago. Enjoy a pleasant voyage? Mm, Enjoyed a fast flight.
27: You must have race. Faster than I expected.
26: Ah, but you did expect. You know, we never quite finished that chat we started in New York... Now, dinner dates might result in a case of malnutrition for me.
27: <laughs> Forgive me, Race, and I'll make it up to you this very evening. There's a quaint place just on the outskirts of town, the Doroth. Let's meet there, um, say, at eight.
26: Fine. Eight o'clock it is. The Doroth is the kind of place you dream about. It had all the old world charm, along with candlelight and exquisite linen and fine old silver place did something extra for Hillary's eyes. And it was difficult not to forget that this lovely creature was a very dangerous companion.
27: Oh, oh I'm enjoying this enormously, Ray. It's the sort of place I'd enjoy spending every evening with someone like you after I get the insurance money.
26: Well, you must be suffering from amnesia, child. You've already received the money. You can put away that fetching stare, Ducky. I got my information from the insurance company.
27: All right, Race. I guess I should have given you my confidence in the first place. I'm listening. I engaged you, Race. Because I'm afraid. Of what? Being murdered.
26: By whom? Gary? Ramek? Heyman?
27: I don't know. Perhaps my husband. Perhaps he really isn't dead. Oh, Race, I'm a coward and the money only gives me more to fear. You're not silly
26: enough to be carting half a million dollars around with
27: you. No. No, I cashed the check, but I put the money in one of those rental lockers that look out of your field before I came over. Here. Here's the key that opens that locker, Race. I want you to keep it for me.
26: You want me to keep it?
27: I don't know why, but I'm convinced that getting rid of this key is my only chance of staying alive.
26: Yeah, that's a very sweet thought. Now, we can stop worrying about you, but uh, what about me?
14: We'll return to the adventures of Frank Race in just about one minute. And now, back to the adventures of Frank Race.
26: I waited for somebody to make a play, but nothing came. Until I got an invitation from Sutra Heyman to take part in some winter sports at a chalet he owned above Snowline. Inside the chalet, there was a roaring fire in every room. Ramek was there, and so was Gary and a few other people I didn't know. But Heyman didn't bother with introductions. He showed me up to my room, and he came in too, closed the door.
11: There is a small balcony outside the window, Mr. Rice. But do not become overly enthusiastic about the view. There is a sheer drop of almost 1,000 feet. You didn't come in to tell me that. Merely polite conversation. A prelude to more important things. What's on your mind? Hillary Stewart. In what way? I'm in love with her. I want you to leave her alone. So you invited us up here to spend the weekend together. Rotten planning. I have several plans... Some of them pleasant. And the others? Most unpleasant. They do not come within a thousand feet of being pleasant. What do you want? The girl or the
26: money? Because if it's the money, you have to deal with me. What do you mean? Stewart's insurance. Half a million dollars. It's locked up, and I've got the only key to it. Then you are not interested in Hillary. Only well, I mean, in a casual sort of way. Many man would be.
11: Gary's the lad you better keep the eye on. Gary works for me. It was his job to keep other men away from her. Oh, so that's it. You'll brace yourself for a shock,
26: Haman. Your muscle man has fallen in love with his work. Gary? You are joking. It's no joke, Haman. He'll kill anybody who tries to take her away from him, including you. planting the seed of doubt within him and I went to bed but I was restive with that thousand foot drop outside the window I felt like a flagpole sitter the day before he breaks the record it was with sleepy delight that I found myself alive in the morning but the sleepiness wore off with tobogganing and skiing and the inevitable snow fight
24: (laughs) Ouch!
16: watch
11: him race He's putting chunks of ice on them.
26: <laughs> when I as a kid, we used to use coal.
11: I'll even it up with you. With this one.
26: Oh, oh, nice work, Romney. <laughs> why, do I get on my right side, will you? You're blocking my swing. Oh, sorry. I forgot you were a south Hold uh, on. Oh, there's Hyman in the open. Let him have it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that
18: is enough. I swear to God. Me too.
20: I'm
27: the only undamaged target left. Oh, uh, just
26: when I was getting the range. Oh, well... <laughs> Look, uh, there's a car coming up the road. Yes, I think it's a friend of mine. I'll go meet him. Was Mark all right in a battered cab that a New York hacky wouldn't have taken into the Catskills? I told the cab driver to wait, and I dragged the protesting Mark up to my room. What's
18: the matter with you? What'd you tell him to wait for?
26: Because he's going right back with him. How about the cables?
18: Oh, yeah, yeah. Bad news. The insurance company got in touch with the police, like you said, and they opened that lock at LaGuardia, but the loot was gone. Gone? Are you sure, Mark? Empty as a horse player's pocket here. Read it yourself.
13: Hmm.
26: How about Romick?
18: Uh, two years with the Dodgers, all right. Dirt base, like he told you. Bad at a lousy two twelve, but he was okay in the field.
26: Still, a southpaw third baseman is a bit unusual.
18: What are you talking about? Romick ain't no southpaw. Just says he was a right-hander. Good boy, Mark.
26: That's what I wanted.
18: Then I don't have to go back down with that nut?
26: Oh, more than ever. You're going to Paris.
18: Paris? Ha! <laughs> Why don't you say so? I'll slide down a hill on my nose.
26: There's a Columbia Life Plan office on the Rue de la Paix. Get to the man in charge and tell him I sent you.
18: Check. Ruth de la Paix. check. Mm.
26: Tell him to contact every major insurance company on the continent and find out if any of them have ever paid a claim on the life of Pete or Peter Romick. Uh, he ain't dead. He may be. This Romick's an imposter. And one more thing. Yeah? I think Hillary brought the money over here with her. A uh-huh. half a million shouldn't be too hard to trace. Have all the foreign exchange branches of the banks checked to see if any private individual has had large sums of American currency exchanged for francs or British pounds, any European currency.
18: Consider that I have done it. And we'll be back with the info in a couple of days.
26: Mm. Well, wait a couple of days. I'll be as cold as yon mountain peak. Heyman has a phone hidden in his den. That's part of the wires. Now, you stay at the Columbia Life Plan office when you get that
18: information. Uh Make them keep the place open all night if you have to. And I'll slip down during the night and phone you from here. (laughs) I will persuade them to stay open with me and ranch. I had less
26: time than I thought. It was in their eyes at lunch. There was a lot of nervous tension around that table. Another very obvious thing was that all the other guests, with the exception of Hillary, Romick, Gary, and, of course, Haman, had suddenly left for other places and other companies.
11: You are not eating well, Rice. I should think this sports would sharpen your appetite. <laughs> he goes on diet sometimes.
26: He loves soup. Well, I'm not much of a lunchhound. Neither is Hillary. Maybe we need more exercise. Walk?
27: I think I'd like that.
26: Excuse mm-hmm. us? Of course. Mm-hmm. Sure. The snow was beautiful. And deadly. Deadly because you left a trail behind you with every step. It was no use trying to hide... There was no place to hide. Hillary knew it, too, because...
27: Race. Oh, Race. Hey, hey, take it easy. Hold me, Race. I'm frightened. One of them's going to kill me.
26: Why, you. I've got the key. There's no time to argue the point, because unless I'm mistaken, there's a man on that far slope. And he has a rifle with a telescopic sight. Look, oh, Get down. Where is he? Never mind. Do as I tell you crawl this way, but keep low.
27: Oh, Race, we can't go any further. There's a drop here.
26: There's a slight slope. If it isn't too sheer, sure, we may make it. Hold on to me now and relax. We're going to go bobsledding without a bobs.
13: No, Race, no!
26: We hit the bottom. It was touch and go, but it was a little extra distance on our side. But we had to keep moving. At least we had darkness to cover us. Then we rested, but not for long. I was trying to figure out a way to work back to the house and keep my telephone rendezvous with Mark when...
27: Race. Race, look.
26: Following the trail with torches. Tenacious, aren't they? Only two lights, though. Hmm. Somebody isn't playing.
11: Race, you can hear me? Don't answer him.
26: Well, thanks for the advice. Think I like to play clay pigeon?
11: Answer me, Race, or I shall have your friend call you. You don't think I let him get back to Zurich, do you? He's got Mark. Your friend wants you to join us here. I will let him tell you. Don't be a sucker, Race. Keep
27: going.
26: I'm sorry, Hillary. All right, Haman. Gary, you've convinced me.
27: Bargain with them, Race. They want the key.
26: Very pertinent suggestion. Listen, Haman, before I make a target of myself, remember, I'm the only one who knows where that key
19: is.
11: You will be released. Get lost, Ray! Get
26: lost! All right, Heyman, but make Gary lay off.
11: You can stop him by walking toward our torches.
14: Here we come.
26: We walked to the lights. Poor Mark. Looked like he'd gone 40 rounds with Dempsey. His eyes swollen half-closed.
18: What'd you have to give up for, Rich?
26: Perhaps to fight another day, boy. All right, Heyman. Shall we march? An excellent suggestion. Your scout troop seems to be short a member of the Eager Beaver Patrol.
11: Rummick? No. No, the man who posed as Rummick. Oh, <laughs> you are very clever, Race. The real Rummick is dead, of course, as you surmise. How about the fake Rummick? He is dead, too, Race. You see, he went up to search your room, and he found part of the cablegram you tried to burn the information about the real Rami. He uh, he was very excited. He wanted to find you and confide in you, I think. But in his excitement, he fell from the balcony. Well, that's convenient.
26: Only two of you to split the money now. How are you going to split uh, Hillary?
11: What do you mean, Race? Well,
26: Heyman was in a tender and confiding mood yesterday. He loves the lady. That uh, makes you rivals, doesn't he?
11: Heyman? He's needling you, you fool.
26: If you can convince him of that, Heyman, you're dumber than I thought. I'm
18: smart enough to make sure. Drop your gun, Heyman, and walk with the rest. This is earlier than
11: I had planned, Scary. But you had to be eliminated sooner or later.
18: Oh, careful, Ray. Now I
11: knew you'd be a sucker,
18: Gary. <laughs>
26: <laughs> <it on> <laughs> now, I'll take that. Don't shoot, Race. Please, don't worry. I love the type. How do you feel, Mark? Oh, Rocky. Oh, that's too bad. I thought you might want to tie the score with Gary.
18: Uh-huh. Oh. Oh, huh. I get it. I, for that, I'm in a pink. Uh-huh. I got one good run in me, and that's just about all it's going to take. Uh, now, listen. No, no I, I, you I... listen. You're a very lucky guy that I ain't got my end well, what do you know? Boy, look at all that ocean under us, will you? <laughs> well, I'd be glad to see New York again. <sighs> hey, what do you suppose them Swiss guys will do to that Garrion?
26: They murdered Heyman. They have laws, good ones.
27: You saved my life, Race. I'm very grateful.
26: You'll pay for it.
27: Of course. I'll pay you well. Are you sure the insurance company will close the case when we've told them everything?
26: When we've told them everything, yes. And as soon as they locate and attach the money, wherever you banked it in Europe.
27: But I don't understand.
26: And you've yet to be tried for being an accessory to your husband's murder. (gasps) Holy smokes, Rice, what are you... You made a big mistake, Hillary. You were the only one who knew the money wasn't in the locker. Or Heyman would have shot me on sight without trying to get the key.
27: That's not true, Race.
26: Oh, yes it is, Ducky. You were all in it together. You, Heyman, and the others. Heyman was easy to tag, too. You know, the manager of a branch office of a bankrupt firm wouldn't own a Swiss chalet. Equipped with servants. Unless he had private means. Like the money from Romick's insurance.
27: That doesn't mean that I had it any... It
26: means you were greedy, Ducky. You didn't want Heyman to cut in on your half million. Really?
27: But, Race, why would I have called you in if I had anything yes, to. Yes, just
26: so you could ask that very question. You knew that I would be the perfect alibi in the eyes of the insurance company. It would have worked, too, beautifully, if you hadn't taken that money out of the locker.
27: You're not going to send me to prison, Race. Never! Never! Race, is getting away!
26: <laughs> 20,000 feet with all that ocean down there? Relax, Mark. She isn't going far.
14: Adventures of Frank Race, starring Tom Collins, with Tony Barrett as Mark Donovan, comes to you from Hollywood. Others heard in tonight's cast were Michael Ann Barrett, Tom Holland, Charlie Lung, Mark Lawrence, and Paul Freese. This series is written and directed by Joel Murcott and Buckley Angel. The music is composed and played by Ivan Dittmars. Be sure to be with us again this same time next week for another dramatic chapter in The Adventures of Frank Race. Art Gilmore speaking. This is a Bruce L's production.
0: Twist at the end there, and uh, nowhere to go for the perp, who was also the client. That was The Adventures of Frank Race with the Enoch Arden Adventure starring Tom Collins in a broadcast from April 2nd, 1949. And we'll go to that futuristic year, 1965, for science fiction from Dimension X. It's next on Skywave Audio Theater. Science fiction was really coming to fashion on radio and TV by the 1950s, and one early purveyor of it was Dimension X. I guess 2000-plus beat it by a few months, but Dimension X certainly uh, is better known today. It produced its first 15 of what turned out to be a total of 50 episodes live, the rest being pre-recorded for broadcast. The series opened with The Outer Limit, Ernest Kanoy's adaptation of Graham Doerr's story published in the Saturday Evening Post just three months before Dimension X picked it up. A story that touched on a theme that would reverberate through science fiction for decades. This is the debut episode of Dimension X, taking us to that futuristic year of 1965, in a broadcast from April 8, 1950.
28: Adventures in Time and Space told in future
9: tense. Dimension
28: <laughs> can you predict what will come in 100 years, or in 10, or in the next minute? Some people think they can, Nuclear scientists, mathematicians, astronomers, biologists. They'll predict the shape of the future. Why? Because they make the future. Because they see beyond the known dimensions of time and space into the unknown, dimension X. We go ahead now in time to 1965. We're on a vast concrete runway set in the desert of the southwest. A giant metal ship stands before us, prow pointed for the stars. And in five minutes the signal will flash and it will tear up through the atmosphere to the outer limit. Attention!
7: Five minutes, Steve. All right. her up, Charlie! her over! I want to go over procedure again, Steve. Don't worry, I got it straight. You just make sure. Okay. I take her up on jets to 50,000, then I cut in the rockets. No lower, or your tail blast will burn out three counties. I climb four minutes on rockets, then start maneuver tests. Remember that, no more than four minutes. Right. This ship isn't like those strata rockets you've been testing. She's the first one built for outer space. If she works, she can go clear to the moon. If I'd known that, I'd have brought my toothbrush. Well, oh, not this trip. Now get this, Steve. You've got power there to clear the Earth's gravitational field. But remember, after you cut in the rockets, you've only got ten minutes' fuel. If you go beyond the outer limit and don't save fuel for the return... I know. I won't get down again. That's right, Steve. You'll drift off into space. Get that now. Ten minutes' fuel. Gotcha. As far as I'm concerned, this project is a lot more important than that cosmic ray bomb they're testing out in the Pacific tonight. The Security Commission brass doesn't think so. I don't see any undersecretaries under anything. Don't worry. In the long run, our ship will make the C.R. bomb backpaid stuff. But in the meantime, it's just as dangerous. Remember, half the principles in this ship are pure theory, Steve. Slide rule stuff. If anything goes wrong, we may have to scrape you off the landscape with a soup spoon. You have a charming sense of humor. Here's what I'm getting at. We're risking your neck in this test. If anything blows, we don't want to have the next man pull the same boner. I know, Hank. So keep your mic open and keep talking. If anything goes wrong, we want to know exactly why. And we won't be able to ask you. Let us know before you pull every switch, before you do anything. You got that? Yeah. Even if you only have to blow your nose.
14: All right, get those fuel lines away. Okay, Mr. Broke.
7: Well, I guess that's about all, Steve. That reminds me, look, if Mary calls, I'm just up on a milk run. I didn't tell her today was it. How is she? She's okay, but she's due about now, and I don't want her to be nervous. Hey, I didn't know the baby was that close. Yeah. Steve, I I really ought to be sending a single man on this job. What, and cut me out of a soft paycheck? Forget it, Hank. You know, you can't get anybody else who can take 15 G's acceleration when those rockets cut in. Yeah, I know. It's time, Steve. Yeah. Well, see you later. Don't worry, Hank. I'll sweat for both of us. Button her up, Charlie. So long, Hank. So long. We'll give you the light from control. Excellent war
8: to control, excellent
7: war to control. Are you there yet, Hank? Okay, Steve, got you on the speaker. I'm ready to go. Mr. Hanson. Ready on radar, Sergeant?
8: Check. Mr. Hanson, you better see this.
7: What is it, Elsa?
8: Message sent for Steve. Mrs. Weston just left for the hospital.
7: What? Hello, Steve. Yeah. Stand by a minute.
8: Shall we hold the takeoff, Mr. Hanson?
7: What? Oh, yes. Uh, no, wait Wait just a minute. It's, uh, it's too late now.
8: You going to tell him?
7: Maybe he's got enough to worry about. Hey, what's holding us up, Hank? Something on your mind? No, no, it's uh, it's nothing, Steve. I just wanted to say good luck. Clear for takeoff, Charlie? Right. Okay. Give him the light. All right, Steve, I'm reading you clear. I'm at 40,000. Airspeed 600. She's running fine. Soundproofing works. There's a third degree waver in the AGY pressure. Got that, Charlie? Check. Uh, Dead center on radar, Mr. Hanson. 50,000 now. Cutting out the port jet. Now the starboard. I'm off jets. Airspeed dropping. Opening the rocket. Switch sticks a little, Charlie. Oxy alcohol, pressure 350. All right, now I'm advancing the ignition key. Here goes rocket one. Steve. Steve, you all right? Yeah. might somebody slugged me with a sledgehammer. Airspeed now, 1200. Here goes number two. Last rocket time is now four minutes. What's your altitude? Over to you. Speed 4400, still climbing. Altitude 297 miles. All right, you're at the outer limit. Level off for maneuver test. You've got exactly six minutes' fuel left. OK. Starting a three degree left bank. It's a little sluggish. There, yeah, it's all right now. There's a low vibration someplace. Maybe the cockpit hatch. Now I'm straightening out. Five minutes fuel left. Now I'm starting a three-degree. Ru- hey, what's the matter? What's wrong? There's something up here. Something's shining. What are you talking about? There's something above me, Hank. I'm going to chase Steve, it. Steve, Steve, you're at the outer limit now. I can see it plain now. Steve, don't go any higher. You've only got four minutes left. You've only got. Getting static. I can't hear you, Hank. It's dead ahead now. I'm going to make a pass at it. Get a good look. Hey, it's swerving to meet me. It's better ahead now. It's dead ahead. Hello. Hello. Hello, Steve. Steve, come in.
15: Nine minutes fuel gone.
7: Still no sign on radar. Hello. Hello, Steve. Steve, what's happened? Charlie, get out the cry squad. Tell the Army Squadron to alert their search planes. Right.
27: Nine and a half minutes Air gone. Squadron. Hello. Hello, Steve. Squadron.
7: What's happened? Well, Where what the devil is Charlie it? Hello. Mr. Come in, Steve. We need a search squadron. Come in. No, Mr. Hanson's busy. Hello. Hello, Steve. Hello, Steve.
13: Ten
15: minutes, Mr. Hanson. It's the end of this fuel. <laughs>
7: How long has it been now? Ten hours, Mr. Hansen. Nothing more on radar, Sergeant? Screen's blank.
15: Uh, Colonel Corelli called in. The search planes are back. They didn't find anything.
7: Should be some trace.
8: He couldn't have bailed out, could he?
7: He don't hit the silk at 4,400 miles an hour. either went past the outer limit, ran out of fuel, something blew, and we'll find the pieces scattered from here to the coast. Why does it have to be the best man? Always the best man. I'll get it, uh, Charlie,
8: yes, Charlie, we—you
7: know—we've got to Stop figure him. out what was wrong. Yes. Uh, all right, I'll tell. Something, you. something all must right, have Mr. blown. Hansen. Yeah.
8: There's a message from Northside Hospital for, for Steve. Well, what is it? Mrs. Weston's fine. It's a boy.
7: Thank you, Elsie. It's a boy, Charlie. Oh, fine, fine. It's a boy. He didn't even know she went to the hospital. How am I going to tell Mary that? Wasn't your fault, Mr. Hanson? Ship had to be tested. Yeah, yeah, we'll build another one, and some other flying fool will shoot past the outer limit into space. Oh, I'm getting old, Charlie. You can remember when I used to take him up myself. Now I've got to send other men. It's a job, Mr. Hanson. Now I'm afraid. Every time I hear a jet go off, I jump. Every time I have to send someone up in a new model, I start to sweat.
16: Mr. Hanson? Yeah? I think there's something on the radar.
7: No flights scheduled in either, Elsie?
16: We have the whole day
8: cleared.
16: It's coming in behind us. Here it comes over the building.
7: What crazy jockey is buzzing the field like that? Is that an army plane, Charlie? I can't see.
1: It's turning.
7: Charlie, alert the field. I know that engine. It's Steve. That's impossible. That's his ship. It can't be. There's no other model like that. It's Steve, all right. It's coming in. Thank God. Thank God. All right, sit down, Steve. The quicker we get this done, the quicker you get over to see Mary and the baby. Hank. Elsie, give the order to check and refuel the rockets. I don't want anybody in here till I get Steve's reports. Bury any calls. All right, let's have it. What the devil happened to you? Hank, does that cosmic ray bomb still go off tonight? What are you talking about? Straighten out, Steve. Where have you been for the last ten hours? Listen, Hank, there's something more important. Come, come on, on, come on. I've got to get a report on the screen to Washington, so let's have it. I've got to know how you stretch ten minutes' fuel to keep you in the air for ten hours. Uh, One thing before I talk, have the Geiger men run over the ship before they refuel. What'd you run into? So help me, Hank, I don't know. We better check and make sure it isn't radioactive. Elsie, add a Geiger report on the standard check. Steve, maybe we better have the doc look you over, too. No, no, I'll be all right. They said I'd be all right. They? Look, son, I know you've had a tough time, but we've had this field on the alert for 10 hours. One of the Army boys cracked up looking for you, and he's hurt bad. So let's have the story. Let's have it straight. I don't know how to tell you. Hank, I saw something up there. At 300 miles? I chased something up there, Hank, and I caught now it. Now, don't hand me that. Listen Steve. I was cruising along, just starting the right bank, when I spotted something. It must have been going about half my speed. It was egg-shaped and smooth. I made a pass at it, and I was coming back for another, and then there was a humming sound. Humming? A sort of vibration, and I blacked out. I was headed straight for it at 4,400 miles an hour. I thought it was going to be the biggest smash since Hiroshima, and I guess they were drinking that bottle. Never mind that, Steve. What happened? I came to inside their ship. Uh-huh. Steve, this whole thing has been a devil of a strain on you. I'm going to call Major Donaldson from the Army base, ask him to sit in. Psychiatrist? Yeah, yeah, that's a good idea. Let him run his tests. He'll tell you I'm not kidding. Because, Hank, unless I miss my guess, I've just been tipped off to the way the world ends. Mr. Weston, suppose you continue your story. Yes, let's have it, Steve. You woke up inside the ship? Yes, and uh, the place was jammed with machinery. Hmm. Dials, blinkers. I couldn't recognize anything. And you were surrounded by these men from Mars? I didn't say anything about men from Mars. I didn't even say they were men. I couldn't see them clearly. They were just there. Where did they come from then? Another galaxy. Another galaxy. Millions of miles outside of our solar system. That's all I know. You figure out where they came from. And they came all that distance to find the Earth? Yes. Did they tell you that? Yes. You mean they spoke English to you? No, no, they didn't. That's funny. I hadn't thought. They didn't really speak to me at all. They just planted the thoughts in my mind. You mean thought, transference, telepathy? Yes, that's right. Well, Steve, what brought them here? We did, Hank. We rang their bell. We brought them in. how? With our atomic explosions. Hank, that's why you've got to stop that bomb test tonight. Uh, I'll give up. Look, you've got to believe me, Hank. Oh, how can I make you understand? Maybe I can help, Mr. Weston. Would you submit to narco-psychometry? What's that? Under proper drugs, I can put you back in this uh, ship, by suggestion. Then we can get a playback record of your memory pattern on the audio circuit. And how long will that take? Half an hour. We'll have to go over to the lab. Will you believe me if it checks? It will give us an accurate memory picture of what your mind reports. All right, let's go. Hank, you got to believe me we haven't got much time. You should be getting drowsy now. Count backwards from ten. Ten. Nine. Eight. Seven. under. Now we attach the headplate electrodes. The cortical pickup. Look out for that wire, Mr. Hanson. 3-0 setting. 31.3. Now throw that switch, Mr. Hanson. I have to start him off by suggestion.
28: All right, Steve.
7: You're in your ship now. You're in the rocket.
28: Rocket? You're in the rocket. You're in the rocket, and you've just sighted something strange.
7: Now I'm starting at three degree right. What's that? Hey, there's something up here. something shining. His memory pattern. We're picking it up electronically. There's something above me, Hank. I'm gonna chase it. It's piped through the audio circuits. I'm getting static. I can't hear you, Hank. This is where we lost contact with him. We're going to make a pass at it and... Hey, it's swerving to meet me! It's not ahead now! It's not ahead! No one. This is where he blacked out. There's no telling how long, minutes or hours. What's that noise? I don't know. Quiet. Where... How did I get in here? What... Who are you? Is he seeing things? Intergalactic patrol. What's that?
28: What are they saying, Steve? What are they saying?
7: It's about nuclear fission. They know about it. They know the danger of it. Long ago, they had wars that almost destroyed them. But finally, they learned. Now they've outlawed war. Go on, Steve. They patrol space. When their detector picks up an atomic explosion, they send a patrol. What are they going to do? They've quarantined us. Quarantined? They've isolated the Earth, because we don't know how to control ourselves yet. Until we learn, we'll be a menace to the whole universe. What is this nonsense? How are they going to do it, Steve? They've spread a layer out here of, I don't know how to call it, all around the Earth. It's miles deep. When there's an atomic explosion on Earth, The radioactive particles will drift up to this layer and set off a chain reaction. It'll go around the world in microseconds. And that's the end. The end? What's he? Wait, wait. Yes. Yes. I understand. I've got to bring back the warning. You're going to put me back in my ship to bring the warning. Now what? Blacked out again. I guess that's all. What does all that mean? It's what he remembers. You don't think that really happened? No, no. Narcosachometry circuits produce what he remembers. It just means that Steve believes this happened. I don't uh, like to see this. Uh, I've seen too many tough uh, pilots snap. Steve is the best I've known. <laughs> How bad do you think he is? Frankly, outside of the presence of this... Well organized, this hallucination, there's no sign of unbalance. It may not be too serious. If you had a more plausible story, I'd be inclined to Warning. believe it. Warning. Warning. Hank. It's all right, boy. Did you hear it, Hank? You understand? Sure, sure. We've, we've been quarantined. Uh, let me give you something to make you sleep, Steve. But don't you understand? They fixed it so that if we set off one more nuclear explosion, that'll be it. Of course. Don't roll your sleeve down. You don't believe me. Now, take it easy, Steve. But the test tonight. They're setting off to see our bomb. Hank, what time is it? 11.20. Well, it's scheduled for midnight. Hank, we got to stop that bomb. Steve, let Donaldson give you the hypo. Hank, you've got to believe me. I saw them. I got the warning. If we touch off that bomb tonight, it'll be the biggest galactic Fourth of July of all time. The whole Earth will go up like a Roman candle. April 10th, 1965, the end. Now, look, Steve, you better calm down. Don't you want to see Mary and the baby? You've got a new son, remember? Yeah, that's just it, Hank. I want to see my son. I want him to live. If that bomb goes off, Hank, we've got to stop them. Mr. Hanson, I think we'd better get over to the base hospital. Hank, you've got to believe me. Yeah, sure, sure, Steve. Maybe there is something to it. Look, it's out of your hands. I'll put it in a report and shove it into Washington in the morning. In the morning? There isn't going to be any morning, Hank. Don't you understand? You've got to call Washington now. Get the head of the security commission and postpone that test. Now, you know I can't do that, Steve. My neck would be out a mile. Besides, this is 1965, not 45. Twenty countries have atomic bombs now. What's the use of stopping just this one? The rest will keep right on popping them up. Well, we'll have to call an international conference. Can't you understand, Hank? The first one that goes off finishes us at the end. They've given us the quarantine warning. Steve, I think you'd better go with us to the base hospital. (laughs) Look, Steve. We can call up for a detail if we have to. All right, all right. I'll go with you. You don't need a straight jacket. That's the way, Steve. You'll probably feel better by morning. Let's go. Well, Steve, tomorrow I'll drive you over to the hospital to see Mary and the kid. Sure. Sure. Look at the ship under the floodlights. Pretty, huh? You'll be flying her again soon, don't you worry. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. Uh... What you doing out in the line? The, uh, refueler? Yeah, we got Clausewitz coming in tomorrow from Denver for another test. I figure we give you a day off. That's good. That's fine. Steve! Steve, come back! Come on, Donaldson! Steve! Steve, wait! He's heading for the rocket! Look there—he goes up. That crazy fool. We can't get at him now. That cover's armor glass. He's waving. Yeah, towards control. What's the radio? He means the radio. Come on. I should have gotten help. Now the radio's still hooked up here. Hello, hello, Steve. Listen to me, Hank. You gotta call Washington now. Come out of that rocket, Steve. I'll call my men. Don't to... try anything, Hank. They refueled the rocket for tomorrow. Take it easy, Steve. Listen, you know what'll happen when I fire the rocket tubes down here? Steve, don't. It'll burn out every building for five miles. All of us in one big blast. Steve, what do you want? You've got to stop that bomb. You've got to call Washington right now. They won't believe me. You make that call or I cut in the rocket. Now, I mean it, Hank. Now, hook my screen to yours in parallel. I want to see exactly what you're doing. All right, all right. Just don't fire those rockets. Get going, Hank. got 12 minutes to make that call and stop that bomb. All right, I'm making the parallel hookup right now. Donaldson, you think he'll really blast? I don't know. Up to now, I'd almost say it was normal. But now he's liable to do anything, Hanson. Steve, Steve, there. Are you getting it on your screen? Yeah. Now put that call through. All right. Operator. Visit screen to Washington.
10: The visit screen circuits are busy, sir. If you'll try again in half an hour. This is
7: security commission priority. Break in and get me a line.
10: Yes, sir. Just a moment, please.
7: Ten minutes, Hank. Listen, Steve, I'm trying. We're ready to take your call, sir. Uh, Washington, Security Commission Three. This is urgent. I want Undersecretary Herbert Ames.
9: Washington Three. One moment, please. Hurry, will you? One moment, please.
7: What time is it, Donaldson? 1151. Do you think he'll fire those rockets? He might. Washington? Visit Screen 3. Mr. Herbert Ames, please.
8: That is a coded exchange. I cannot accept your call without clearance. Get it
7: through, Hank! Listen, Washington, put it through. This is Mr. Hansen at San Marco Air Base. This is a priority call. I'm coded.
15: One moment, please. I will check your code number. You get that through, Hank, and that bar goes off at 12.
0: Will
7: you be reasonable, Steve? Your
15: call has cleared, San Marco. Washington, Visit Screen 3. Herbert Ames, please.
7: Security Commission Ames. <laughs> Listen to Ames. Oh, hello, Hans. Ames, you gotta get me to the chief. Are you kidding? He's at the test control room. Yes, I know, but get him for me. What's up? You look lousy. Or is it a bad circuit? There's no time. I've got to get him before the test. It's about the CR bomb. I can't take that responsibility. through, <laughs> oh, Hank. I glad. Hey, what's going on there? Ames, my project has a high enough rating. This is a priority A call. What? Well, okay, it's your neck. I'll try to get him for you. He's in the control room, so you'll have to switch off your screen and speaker and go on earphones. Too much going on in there. Security you hear that Steve? Better, uh, I've got to cut the incoming screen. All right, but don't try anything. Eight minutes, Hank. Hello? Hello? What? You got him, Hank? Yes. This this is Hanson at San Marco. No, sir. Priority A request to cancel the bomb test. No, no, I'm serious. This is deadly serious. We sent the X-2 JTR up today to the outer limit. We uncovered evidence. Yes, on the automatic instruments. What's that? No possible chain reaction. No, I I can't tell you the whole story. There isn't time here. Yes, yes, I'll bring the readings into Washington in the morning. You've got to postpone the test till you see them. Look, I've worked on contracts with the commission for 10 years. Yes, yes, I have complete confidence in my information. You can record that. All right, I'll call you back immediately. Bye. Thanks. He's agreed to cancel, Steve. The bomb won't go off. All right, boy. You can come down out of that ship. He's opening up. Here he comes. All right, Steve. Come on down. Sure, Hank. Just a second. <laughs> Hank, I was scared. I was plain scared. Easy now. It's all over. The bomb won't go off. Thank God. Look, uh, I want to see Mary and the baby. <laughs> Can you get me transportation now? Oh, wait a minute, it's almost 12. They won't let you in the hospital now. I want to see the baby. Sure you do, but you've been under a strain. I've got a shot for you here, Steve. Give you a good night's sleep. All right, roll up your sleeve. Yeah, here. Yeah, there, that'll make you sleep. Sergeant will find you a bed. Yes, sir. Come on, Mr. Weston. OK. Good night, Hank. I'm kind of beat. It's been a tough night. It sure has. I thought for a minute he was going to blast those rockets and send us all to kingdom come. Yeah. Quite a stunt getting the ray bomb test called off. It isn't called off. But the chief said... Ames couldn't get the chief. I was talking to a dead circuit. Bomb goes off in a couple of minutes.
16: Oh. Poor Steve.
7: He was one of the best. He was the best. One in 10 million. Some story of his, poor guy. For a while, he almost had me believing that quarantine. That's a very common delusion, End of the world. Yeah, I suppose so. Ah, it's a nice night. Never saw the stars so bright. we better be getting in. That wind is cold. Well, the bomb goes off in 30 seconds. Poor Steve. You know, Hanson, there's just one thing. Yeah?
28: It's outside my field, but I'm curious. How did he keep that ship in the air for 10 hours with only
7: 10 minutes' fuel? have just heard The Outer Limit by Graham Doar, an adventure in time, space,
28: and the unknown dimension X. <laughs> now, about next week. Have you ever heard of the Mark Three? the amazing electronic brain at Harvard that instantly solves the most complicated scientific problems. Suppose you had a mechanical brain like that in your house, a robot that was always at your service, so that you could just sit with folded hands and relax the rest of your life. That would be nice, wouldn't it? Perfect. That's what they thought when it happened in the year 2006. But they were wrong, terribly wrong. How? I'll tell you next week. Tonight's story, transcribed on Dimension X, The Outer Limit by Graham Dorr, was adapted for radio
7: by Ernest Canoy. Featured in the cast were Joseph Julian as Steve, Wendell Holmes as Hank, and Joe DeSantis as Major Donaldson. Your host
28: is Norman Rose. Music was by Albert Berman, sound designed by Sam Monroe. Edward King directed.
7: Tomorrow, here's Sam Spade. Now it's Truth or
19: Consequences on NBC.
0: A memento of the Atomic Age with an ominous plot twist at the end. That was the debut episode of Dimension X called The Outer Limit from April 8th, 1950. A story that was about uh, 13 years broadcast ahead of the final nuclear test ban treaty, at least for atmospheric testing. Dimension X was a transitional series broadcast live for its first 13 episodes, including the one we just heard, of course, and then pre-recorded for the last of its 37 episodes. Next week, we'll wrap up that three-part serial from Adventures by Morse, and we'll have some other forays into the world of sound. I'm Norman Gilliland. Thanks for joining me this time out, and I hope you can join me then for more from Skywave Audio Theatre.